And we sing hallelujah to the 
in wisdom you live. Oh, in wisdom you have made. You are Yahweh. Father, we praise you. Welcome, everyone. This is Torah Portions. I'm Sean, your host. You're watching this on Kingdom in Context. I just want to thank everyone for being here. I appreciate uh, everyone that's already waiting in the live Shalom. chat. And uh, you guys are awesome. Let me go in here real quick. Um, thank you to uh, Gilead10. Looks like you dropped a super chat. I really appreciate that. You're running your treadmill watching us. <laughs> that's awesome. Nothing like multitasking, getting some word in while you build the body, build the heart at the same time. Guys, thank you. Um, we have uh, some familiar names and faces here in the live chat. We're glad that you could join us this morning as we're going to continue picking up our study through Exodus. We're going through uh, chapters 14 through 17. So just a quick shout out to um, Eric Sagali, Be Good, Zora Pagosian, Joy Trujillo is here. Um, we see Tyler Porter's back, Miss Marsha, Eddie Steckinger, Windfeather, Lore. Welcome, everyone. Sh uh, Sharon Myron, Jane Frisk. Welcome. Jacqueline Green. Welcome. Tracy Jones is here. Controversy of Elohe is here. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. And so many more, guys. But without further ado, we have a couple of guests that are going to be joining me for the reading today and the discussion. And we'll want to bring them on and introduce them real quick. We have our brother Hannibal. Who's today. Shalom, everyone. Hey, brother. Good to have you back. Thank you so much. Glad to be back. All right. We also have our brother West Blaze from West Blaze Music. Shalom, my friends. Hope y'all had a good Sabbath rest. Welcome, brother. Good to see you. I like Thank that you. sweater you got on. What you got on there? What's, oh, what's it's you... just a little bit of Uncommon Ground swag. Yeah, I, I can okay. get that over at the All Uncommon right. Ground Teespring store. Season two on the way. You guys be looking out for that. Um, so, guys, we have some uh, some fun stuff to read today and discuss here in Exodus 14 through 17. We got a pairing from Jubilees 48 and then also Mark 6. So I think we're going to have a lot of fun stuff to discuss and talk about. Um, how you guys been doing before we get started? Hannibal, what's been going on with you, brother? Uh, with me, it's been uh, a lot of work. Um, this this portion is uh, pretty interesting because uh, this past few weeks, it feels like I've been um, a bit like the Israelites, uh, grumbling and complaining a bit. But uh, it's uh, Yah has an amazing sense of humor, and uh, he's been lifting my spirits uh, these past few days with this portion especially. So I'm looking forward to getting through it. Awesome. Hey, Wes, that's good to hear, brother. Yeah, this this is a unique uh, portion. Um, but the last couple of weeks, I guess, just this whole Exodus concept, just considering what's going on in the state of the world. I don't know if it's just the, uh, you know, there's a there's a portion in First Samuel, I believe it is, where it says uh, the moment that David was tempted when he saw Bathsheba. And it says um, it was in the spring when kings normally go out to war. Mm -hmm. And that's when David stayed back for whatever reason. And and was and that's during that time period is when he saw Bathsheba. Um, on a rooftop. And so I, it, I just make me wonder, like, what is it about the springtime that that's when kings go out to war? You know, mm -hmm. it's just kind of interesting other than the natural, the natural weather of it all. Right. They don't want to go to war in the mm -hmm. winter, make that Napoleon mistake. So they just wait for, you know, the nine months of kind of, kind of good weather, you know, so maybe yeah. they start the year off in power. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. What's up West place. How you been lately? I've been blessed, brother. Blessed beyond belief. I've, uh, you know, I take care of my grandmother, as many of you know, and she's been doing all right. And uh, I've been really invested in 
in this new series that I've started with uh, Spiritual Warfare called Fight the Good Fight. A lot of you have already checked out and left some really amazing reviews and comments, and I've been really blessed by the reactions and responses that I've gotten from that. And uh, y'all can check that out over on my page, my channel, West Blaze Music. Yeah, it was a great first episode. Bravo, brother. Good job. Thank you. So if you guys haven't already seen that, go over and check that out. It's actually on our on our Kingdom of Context channel. It's one of our recommended channels as well as West Blaze Music. Yep. And you guys can subscribe and don't miss any of that. But guys, without further ado, let's jump right in. Yeah, I'm excited. This is some exciting stuff for like history of our faith, right? That's some right. miracles happening. This is a, this is some good stuff here. Um, who wants to read first? Uh, Anna, go. Would you take the first chapter? Okay. Sure. All right. Exodus chapter 14. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp before Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea. You are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Balsaphon. For Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. But I will gain honor by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. So this is what the Israelites did when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So Pharaoh prepared his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out defiantly. Then the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pihiroth, opposite Balsaphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified and cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the wilderness to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? They were not to say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see Yahweh's salvation, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, you need only to be still. Then Yahweh said to Moses, why are you crying to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. And as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. Then I will gain honor by means of Pharaoh and all his army and chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I am honored through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who had gone before the camp of Israel, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from before them and stood behind them, so that it came between the camps of Egypt and Israel. The cloud was there in the darkness, but it lit up the night. So all night long, neither camp went near the other. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night... Yahweh drove back the sea with a strong east wind that turned it into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with walls of water on the right and on the left. And the Egyptians chased after them and all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen and followed them into the sea. At morning watch, however, Yahweh looked down on the army of the Egyptians from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their camp into confusion. He caused the chariot wheels to wobble so that they had difficulty driving. Let us free from the Israelites, said the Egyptians. For Yahweh is fighting for them against Egypt. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hands over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal state. As the Egyptians were retreating, Yahweh swept them into the sea. The waters flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh, that had chased the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with walls of water on their right and on their left. 
That day, Yahweh saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore. When Israel saw the great power that Yahweh has exercised over the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh and believed in him and his servant Moses. All right. Thanks, Hannibal. Yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> it's so funny. We had uh, uh, someone in the chat, Lorray. She said, uh, oop, where'd it go? She said, that east wind is no joke. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Some interesting things yeah. about that, that east wind in Enoch 77, I believe. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did you have a, a scripture pulled up that you want to talk about like that? No, I was looking it up because in the Septuagint, it says that it was a south wind that, that uh, divided the waters. So I was looking up if there's any different characteristics in the two winds that come out of the, you know, three gates on each side of the heavens. Um, I couldn't find anything interesting, but, uh, you know, there's some winds, I think four are for uh, prosperity and I think nine are for, you know, <laughs> punishment and destruction and all that. So I was wondering if what specific gate that wind came out of. That's yeah, right. I was looking at Job in the Septuagint recently, too, and I noticed there was a wind that was changed the direction of from the Masoretic to the Septuagint as well. So mm, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, that's this is why I'm always telling folks, let's just use all the translations we can and compare them as we can, because yep. there's no perfect translation. I know that we've actually talked a lot on our channel about how the Septuagint can bring more clarity in certain instances, but other mm-hmm. times it's just like the Masoretic or even confusing in its own right, you know, so. Yep. Um, and there's there's verses that are not in either one of them, right? So like mm. there are verses that are put in the Septuagint that not in Masoretic and vice versa. So it's just it's weird. I don't you know I don't know who had the the actual original copies of all these things. If there ever were any, uh, if they were since the beginning, just you know since the great dispersions, if they all just um, had partial copies, they did their best to fill back in. But ultimately, um, I always just tell people just try and compare them all if you can. You know if you have we have the free resources online. You know, with all those translations. So, um, uh, West Plays, what was your first thoughts after reading this crazy chapter here? Oh man, well, my first thought when I originally went to cover this and and you know review the portion before we came on here today was I was reminded of a certain documentary because I checked out yours and Lindsay's interview with Matthew Jansen the other day, and y'all were talking about y'all's uh, testimony of your relationship and everything, and I was it brought to mind that y'all watched patterns of evidence on like your first date i remembered and uh just random sean and Lindsay trivia right but (laughs) and uh so it was just i was reviewing that documentary and looking at at all the different theories and what they were talking about i noticed i don't know if it was in this passage but it said something about the, the waters of the deep congealing and maybe that was a part of it too that the somehow they hardened froze or if, if that wind was strong enough, like maybe, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, miraculously, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like if it's if the wind is cold and strong and I guess it could have frozen them. But ultimately, um, I I'm sorry. Was that the was that the rest of the thought or was that the question? That, no, that was all I had. It was just I was okay. the thought on it. <laughs> well, because I, you know, growing up, I'd, I was kind of baffled doing this, uh, this review this year because something struck out, stuck out to me that I never thought of. And I'm trying to pull up the image real quick because I didn't really have a, a slide prepared for the image. But um, let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Uh, but just the placement of this, uh, according to what most people think is this, this region, this uh, what they call Bell Zephon. Um, mm. So verse one, you know, it tells you that let me see if I can get this to open up in its own. Ah, uh, it's of interest. Which oh, Belzephon okay. means Lord of the North, right? And Pihaharoth means yeah. mouth of canal. 
Right, the mouth of the canal. So one second, let me just see if I can uh, get this to magnify. I don't know why it's it's I mean, it's giving me struggles here. Okay, let's see here. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary says that Beelzephon was also the name of a sea and storm god. Yeah, it's it's Baal, um, and they yeah. and the Hebrews and the or the Greeks they equated it to um, Zeus. I was about to say, sounds like yeah, it. yeah. So check this out. This is. Um, it's kind of hard to see, man. This is hard to see. I can see it. Yeah. Yeah, let me see if I get bigger, real quick. And maybe I can pop open a one second, guys. Um, because I want to show you what that that word pihaharath, whatever. I can't even say it. It's so hard to say. Um, there we go. Here we go. This is much better. Much better. Okay. So check this out, guys. So this is an, like an arrow view of that region. And this, uh, as you can see, the top right with the little arrows pointing the white arrow to this mountaintop that's called Belzephon. Um, this is what they most most scholars and archaeologists believe that this is the, lo the ancient location of Belzephon. And that this causeway here where that, that crosses the actual sea, that was the place it crosses, right? As it goes into this canal uh, to the left, to the top left. But to the to the right is the rest of the the largest part of the Red Sea area, right? Which is where why it says the mouth of the canal. Mm -hmm. So, just I okay. So growing up, I always saw this, you know, all depictions and even some depictions from like maps from arrow stuff. Never saw them crossing in this particular area. Always saw them crossing in more of like look like a straight river, right? With straight river banks on both sides. Never next to this volume of water guys mm -hmm. this like uh, yeah it's a miracle regardless but this is insane to 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 think about what we're showing here right we got mountains on the left you got an entire sea on the right that he decided i'm gonna make that stand still and i'm gonna stop this up and i'm gonna move this aside like that is ridiculous volumes of water um and here's the crazy part bales of this mountain here on the right which is literally where he told you know he told him in that that chapter to go camp opposite of bell directly opposite of belzephon so that means it says they turned back and eat them which means the wall yeah so they turned back so they they went past this point they turned back intentionally to go to this point and remember that tells us later you know uh the lord did this to to trick pharaoh and to let pharaoh think that they had trapped themselves and so so the father is going out of his way to put the Israelites specifically directly opposite of Belzevon, where there was a temple to Zeus, where people worship Zeus on Belzevon. They're being so led do, by an angel the whole time to do this, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, no yeah. That they, yeah. Yeah. And he's doing this, like he's putting them here intentionally so he can display his wonders, not just for the Israelites, not just to, you know, give the last ditch opportunity for the Egyptians to repent, which they didn't, they hardened their hearts further. But literally, he's showing out in front of his enemy, Zeus. Hmm. Like that is crazy. He could have he could have uh, had them walk around to the edge and walk on land and not even cross the sea at all. But specifically, the placement of where he's trying to cross them is directly in view of a temple of his enemy, Zeus. Like that is <laughs> to me, that's just hilarious. That's uh, that's yeah. pretty salty. That's pretty mm -hmm. salty to me. So. Um, I think I thought that was fascinating. Just the the uh, the size of the miracle was grander than I ever really understood, and the fact that he's doing it directly in front of an enemy temple, I thought was just man, that's just amazing.
truly amazing. It really is. Um, so yeah, that that's great. That is what uh, Pihaharath means and Bells of Fawn. And that's where, you know, just those ideas for like, what's, what's the placement here? What's going on? And did you guys notice that, um, like it said, once they, once the water was parted and the, the Israelites were going through and then um, the angel of the cloud is, is in the fire is still separating the two camps of the Egyptians and the Israelites. But the Egyptians, you know, they follow down into the pathway between the waters. And it says because their hearts were hardened. And so that just made me think the Israelites, and we see this at the end of this chapter, that they see these wonders and signs, and therefore they start to believe in God and then believe in Moses, the servant of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. And it's like their heart is being softened throughout all this while the Egyptians are being hardened throughout all this. So all these plagues we've been reading about, this whole this whole time that he's bringing them out, um, and, and, and all these miracles he's doing for them, and will continue to do for them, it's to soften their hearts. And so I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about this, because, you know, as we see these uh, these uh, Israelites, as we get further in chapters, uh, many of us are already aware that they have several struggles with their loyalty to Yahweh, um, even to the point of hearing just two months later, um, they're at the Mount, base of Mount Sinai and they start worshiping Baal again. So my big question was, when did they start worshiping Baal? Back in egypt i would presume yeah. right i just right. think it's cool my first thought that came to mind was that a mixed multitude still came out even though the hardened hardening of the hearts was happening the plagues a mixed multitude still left out of egypt with them yeah yes because some of them their hearts softened their as a heart, result. yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's awesome right it's a great testimony that you know no one is uh uh pre what is it called um nobody is uh Gosh, I can't think of the word right now. No one's predestined yeah. to be condemned yeah. or doomed. You know what I'm saying? So even though Yahweh announces and then follows through with plague after plague, he announces, I'm going to destroy Egypt. I'm going to judge them and their gods because of what they're doing to my people. Some of those people that were being a part of the oppressors repented and became a part of the oppressed uh, to share with them in their plight. And it remind those people remind me of the Matthew 25 moment that are judged as sheep, mm -hmm. right? For, for unto my brethren that you did, you did unto me. You know, and so like that's that's why they'd be grafted into the kingdom, you know, because mm -hmm. so it, it is a beautiful moment. It truly is. Um, I just was I was just as amazed. I never knew that there was an actual uh, temple to Zeus literally right in front of where they crossed. And according to what I read from history, all the surrounding nations knew that that was like the main place. That was like a huge point of uh, uh, centrality for yeah. Zeus worship. It was the epicenter of Baal worship for sure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean it's a, uh, it's it seems like um, when people have their hearts hardened when these miraculous signs and wonders are taking place, uh, it's almost like they're not not only becoming more bitter towards the Creator, uh, but they're also like blinded. They can't recognize the miracles for what they really are. Because imagine being the Egyptians, seeing um, both sides of the of the Nile, well, of the river being standing up, and they they don't even think for a second that well, the God that split the sea can close it on us anytime right, right? <laughs> they're, they're so blinded to it and you know um i've have had moments when you know you're you're just you know down in a, a hole and you're feeling throwing your own pity party and you can't even see what god is doing for you and only as he, you know he pulls you out you see like oh man all these miraculous things that he did for you and i think it's uh you know we see it um uh, even in the companion passage later that when your heart is hardened, you can't see miracles, even when they're right in front of you. Uh, so it's it's very fascinating. 
That's true. That's a good point, brother. So we uh, here at the end of Exodus 14, I just put some quick notes down for those of you studying at the house. Um, and, you know, I, I was trying to further share with my wife, you know, my intent for, for these summaries, just in case I never fully explained this when I changed the format of the Torah portions. But for me, it's always been helpful to remember what each chapter in each book talks about, and then I can navigate the Bible super quick. Yeah. So that's why, yeah, definitely. That when you guys hear me, you know, jumping around and citing scripture, many times I don't cite it, I don't verbatim re repeat the scripture because there's so many different translations. But I will tell you, oh, I know what chapter that's in. I'll go right there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then I can, I know how to access it quicker. So this is what I want to help other people do as well. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why I do these summaries. So here in Exodus 14, it says, Yahweh through the angel of the presence instructed Moses to have the Israelites turn around and go camp on the beach across from the mountain where Zeus was worshipped, which is called Belzephon. Satan stirred Pharaoh to chase after the Israelites. We're going to talk about that here a little bit more in a minute. Um, the placement of the Israelites came the, excuse me, the placement of the Israelite camp deceived Pharaoh into thinking the Hebrews were trapped against the sea. Um, and it's really hard to fight on sand as well. So I don't I think that's a sandy beach area. So it's kind of a militarily, your leaders would never take you to that place to fight and make a last stand, right? Um, the angel and the pillar of fire and cloud moved to the rear of the Israelite encampment to prevent the pursuing Egyptian army from attacking. And the, to me, this is this is like the most interesting part. I mean, I mean, I, we've everything's interesting about it, but this is the most tension building part i should say of this story and and i think uh you know that that old animated cartoon the prince of egypt i think it, it kind of did did justice to this little scene where the fire cloud moves in front mm -hmm. of the egyptian army and they and they're afraid to move you know and their horses are startled and and so i'm just like and it's there the entire night so it just made like that's that's tension building right so because this thing you just saw this thing move and i don't know if they can see the angel through the fire cloud or not but you just saw this thing move in front of you and you're scared enough not to continue to advance, but yet this thing's not advancing on you any further. He's just holding the line. And it's like, I wonder if any of them tried to test that line and, you know, got some of their clothes singed a little bit. Or something. I don't know how that worked, but I just know that they were clearly afraid not to move um, the moment this thing got in front of them. So they, it's like they had enough, they had enough intelligence to respect that, you know? But then they're like, their God just opened the sea for them. And they're walking yep. through it, and we're going to just chase after them and think it's okay because we still want to kill them. It's like they didn't, they weren't smart enough to put two and two together to think their gods don't like us. Like we should probably, we should probably chill. But I think we're going to read in our companion passage to so stick with us, guys. Jubilees 48 gives us a little bit more information on what was going through their minds and their hearts and how they were being influenced by Satan. So this is where. You know, don't worship Baal, right? You don't, you, you lose part of your faculties. <laughs> this is why the father brings you to being sober minded. That's right. Uh, we also got uh, the, the angel on the pillar of fire and cloud moved to the rear. Uh, I just said that one. Yahweh instructed Moses to raise a staff so that he could part the waters of the Red Sea for the Israelites to cross over between the standing wall of waters. I'm sure that was just an incredible, incredible sight. A strong wind blew across the seafloor between the standing walls of water to create dry land for the Israelites to traverse safely. And the Israelites crossed the Red Sea on dry land throughout the night while the Egyptians' army pursued them along the dry land between the waters with the angel of the pillar of fire between the two armies. And so that is the point where, I, you know, it's like they, they respect the pillar of fire that's in front of them to stop them from advancing to try to kill the Israelites. But then they follow the pillar of fire into between the waters in the middle of night. 
with this amazing miracle happening, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm surely there was somebody in the Egyptian army at some point in the, in the masses that was like, guys, this is a really bad idea. We should, we should yeah. not be here. <laughs> like this is <laughs> and yeah. someone behind him, just push him. Keep going. You yeah. Know? And, like, I just, oh my goodness. I can't even Cause imagine. they were basically being coerced, right? As frightening mm -hmm. as all this was, you know, massive sea raging, opening around them and a yeah. pillar of fire, right? An angel glowing. Yeah. I can only imagine like just radiating mm -hmm. heat and energy. And, uh, yeah, they see all that. So they, they had to have been coerced to think that, yeah, this is normal. Let's just chase after them into this. What I loved at the at the end of summary one of two, you had where Yahweh instructs Moses to, to raise his staff. It's like he didn't need to. God didn't need him to do that for mm -hmm. him to do the miracle. But he still asks of his, of his people to do something in faith, like perform an action in faith. Mm -hmm. that God works the miracle through that. Absolutely. Cool. Yep. Yeah, he's also solidifying... Um, in the in the side of the Israelite people, he's trying to solidify Moses's leadership. There you go. You know, yeah. and so it's and it, yeah, it's definitely Yahweh could do this without mankind raising their hands or raising their staff, but uh, he wants to work with us. You know, um, at daybreak, Moses called for the waters of the Red Sea to return to their place, and the Egyptian army, numbered one million, were drowned. We're going to actually discuss that in our companion passage of Jubilees forty-eight, that it was actually a million people that mm -hmm. drowned. And it tells you why it was a million people. So stick with us. Also, witnessing this event, the Israelites began to fear Yahweh and believe in him and his servant Moses. Like I mentioned earlier, to me, this was pretty much telling of, you know, the, the Israelites' hearts are beginning to be softened because their hearts were hardened. Remember what they tell him? Um, well, we're going to read this, I think, in chapter 15 or 16. They're like, well, you know, why did you bring us out here? You know, like, why did yeah. you bring, we could have been, we could have died in Egypt, just, just the same, you know what I mean? Um, or earlier, I think it was chapter 14 or 13. They're, they're, they're saying like, you know, what do you, we don't want to, we don't want to go with you. Why do you, why are you trying to do all this? You know, mm -hmm. when all the plagues were going, you know what I'm saying? So there were, obviously we see those people weed themselves out over the next uh, 40 years, but there were factions within the Israelites that left that weren't faithful to Yahweh. They were still wanting to worship Baal. Their hearts were still hardened. And so this is the turning point that I was, I was discussing this with my wife um, as we were reading this ourselves. And because we don't get the information on this, not in Jubilees, nor in Genesis, um, nor any account that I've ever read. But we don't get the turning point while the children of Israel were in the land of Goshen after the reign of Joseph and before this Pharaoh took over and started oppressing them. We don't get the, the turning point where they became susceptible to the curse of the covenant, which is being oppressed by your enemies. And that comes when you abandon worshiping Yahweh and start worshiping the false gods. So, I mean, this is Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 4. This is the promise of the covenant. Yahweh's like, if you stop doing my commands and transgress my covenant, um, you're going to face a lot of problems. And one of them is you'll be weak and vulnerable and oppressed by your enemies, whether scattered, invaded, or, you know, they besiege you and create famine. And so this is where we have this new pharaoh that took over and systematically started incrementally impressing them. But my thought, from and you guys tell me what you think about this, but my thought is like, if they were still doing covenant, they would have been strong and clear-minded and not have fallen into what we clearly see is they have now bad habits of worshiping Baal. What do you guys think? Go ahead, Hannibal. Any thoughts? Well, you, you know, like uh, Sean said, there's no books that tells us exactly what point, but, you know, I think um, in our own lives, we can all have moments where, you know, like Paul said, you know, good, 
bad company corrupts a good character. And um, as they were in Egypt, you know, maybe they wanted to branch out and just, you know, the dainties of sin is always going to be appetizing to us, you know, no matter how righteous we become, uh, we're still susceptible. And, uh, you know, I don't even know if people left Goshen and went back to Canaan, you know, and, and started, you know, just hanging out there. People that still uh, worshipped the creator of the heavens and the earth. We see Jethro and we see other people, you know, being prophets of the Most High. Um, so I have no idea, but... Well, we, we know that Amram, Moses' father, yeah. um, he he was he came from Canaan uh, mm -hmm. to Goshen uh, around the time the Hebrew babies were being killed. Um, so he actually left Goshen when Jacob died and the funeral procession went to Canaan and stayed there with yeah. some others. So that's... But he, I don't think he was, he was a faithful Levite. Seems, seems like, seems like he was training. No. Up. And, it, and it's interesting, like um, when the, when the Pharaoh that was an Assyrian that came in uh, mm -hmm. after, you know, the Pharaoh that knew Joseph passed away. I wonder how quickly they sort of started walking away from the covenant. It was it like a few years or, uh, you know, was it a decade or was it a generation that had to go pass away? And uh, looking at what's taking place right now in, in our modern days, I think it was a bit faster than we might suspect. Uh, because things can degradate and just collapse really quickly, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's intense. Yeah, yeah because it's and I, I agree with you. It was definitely. <clears throat> I would I would lend I would tend to think that it's it is that. Um, by the way, it's it's King Macamaron. That's what Jubilees forty six tells us. He was a he was a king of Canaan, but he was dwelling in Assyria, and that's where I was yeah. concluding that he had he was the one they chose to like take over the Babylonian Empire. And that's mm -hmm. why then he was expanding his reach and came and attacked Pharaoh and took over Egypt as well. And so um, and so what's interesting about that, though, Hannibal, we can talk about that here in a minute. Um, this whole chapter is huge, guys. I know we got a few more chapters to get to, but this this like we could probably do three hours on this chapter. Yeah. That that particular king. Think about what we what the question is. Right. When did he, Egypt turn from? their faithful covenant behavior that they were doing during the days of Joseph and after that's what Jubilees 47, I believe tells us. And um, that they were all walking in brotherly love with each other and doing the commandments and everything was good. Right. We got the Testament yeah. patriarchs. All of them are telling their, their children, grandchildren, do the commandments, be faithful. And, but then this new King shows up and suddenly they incrementally get oppressed, which means at some point they had to turn to start worshiping other gods, um, but to, to put themselves in that vulnerable position and show us the behavior that they're showing now when coming out of the Exodus. So it, think about this, that King of Canaan though, he, that was ruling from Assyria and then came over and attacked Egypt. What, what did they, okay. So what did all the other Canaanite Kings in Canaan, what were they doing when Israelites came out? They were ready for them. Mm -hmm. They didn't want them to come back and take what was rightfully theirs, that land. Remember the land of Canaan was stolen. Yeah. By sedition, the breaking of the covenant that was made with Noah amongst Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Mm -hmm. So all that that's why all the, the the cities within Canaan, they were they knew that here come the Israelites again. This is what you know, whether they knew the promised Abraham or not that this would happen, or whether they just knew they were there by sedition, either way, they knew, hey, we're we gotta defend this area that we're living in because the Israelites are are being brought back here, so we're gonna have to fight them for it. And how interesting that this king of Canaan is wanting to kill them so they can't come back. Yeah. Like he's trying to even yeah. stop them before the process happens, oppress yeah. them, diminish their numbers, you know, keep them subjugated. And the, and Yahweh 
is like, all right, you got my people downtrodden, beaten down, transgressing the covenant. They don't believe in me. Well, I'm going to do all this to, to, to soften their hearts. So they believe in me. And then I'm going to take them into your land. I'm going to, I'm going to bring them back here and destroy you anyway. So like yeah. as much as the enemy, you know, it reminds me of Psalm two, right? The nation's rage in vain, no matter what they plot and plan. Yahweh just kind of chuckles. He's like, whatever, dude, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I want anyway. I told you guys what I'm going to do a long time ago and I'm going to do it. And you can't, you can't stop me, but you can try. You can sharpen your little spears if you want, but like, I got this angel. who's just going to, you know, like, anyway, it's just, it cracks me up. So yeah, I'm reminded, I can't help but be reminded of how there was the seven years of prosperity, then the seven years of famine. And during that famine, Joseph through, you know, God's help had it all set up so that Egypt would have more bread than anywhere else of all the surrounding territories. Therefore, during that famine, the surrounding territories came and they sold all their belongings, their land and everything, and including themselves to the the Pharaoh, right, to the, the powers of Egypt. And then all the surrounding ter territories, their power and their wealth diminished while that power and wealth grew right there for the Pharaoh in Egypt. And so then you got the new Pharaoh coming in. And he's inheriting all this wealth and power over the nations around him. And it probably got to his head. And then so the people followed his lead. And that's how quickly it can be, uh, you know, a process of turning from covenant behavior because of the greed and the, the wealth and power. Yeah. yeah, there's that for sure. Um, any other thoughts on this chapter, guys? There's so much here. No. No. Okay. Hannah, <laughs> uh, uh, West Place, do you want to read uh, 15? I'd be happy to. All right. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I don't know how it goes, but I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Yahuwah, right? Pharaoh's chariots and army he has cast into the sea. The finest of his officers has are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. The, they sink like a stone. <laughs> your hand, your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up like a wall. The current stood firm. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. There it was. The enemy declared, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You straight, uh, you stretched out your right hand and the, the earth swallowed them up. With loving devotion, you will lead the people you have redeemed. With your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the dwellers of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. Those who dwell in Canaan will melt away and terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you have bought pass by. Oh, there it is. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you have prepared for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands have established. 
the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women began following her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang back to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the desert of Shur. For three days they walked in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. Excuse me. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? And Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And when he cast it into the waters, they were sweetened. Hmm. Some iced tea there. Then uh, there the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he tested them, saying, If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and pay attention to his commands and keep all his statutes, then I will not bring you uh, bring on you any of the diseases I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the waters. All right. All right. Thank you, West Blaze. No worries. Thank you. So it said the uh, the diseases that he inflicted on the Egyptians. So to me, that reminds me of Ecclesiastes 12, 12 and 13. For it is the whole duty of man to keep the commandments of God. Hmm. And not just, not just Israel, but all of mankind. Right. We're expected to do his covenant behavior and be in covenant with him. And when we don't, we do we're doing sinful destructive behaviors mm -hmm. and so it just which brings natural consequences both through our bodies through the land we inhabit and of course for our eternal our eternal destinations right so that's that's kind of what i'm thinking is is what's where i was bringing my thoughts earlier which is this idea that um just as in leviticus 26 he tells israel look if you transgress my covenant you know you're going to be filled with famine and disease and your your ground will be like you know bronze and your sky will be like iron and your enemies will invade you and overcome you and scatter you. And even at one, further on down, he goes, you'll even get to a point where you're, you're cooking your kids, which is what we see mm -hmm. fulfilled in the days of Isaiah, right? Which extreme famine, you know, and because they were being besieged, which means their enemies are attacking them, which means they're weak. So whenever we're doing the covenants of God, whenever we're doing the commandments of God, now I'm not, I'm not excluding actual persecution, but at the same time, there is an inherent promise that we see the father, if for people that are very faithful and in, in doing his behavior, um, you have access, if you will, if I could say it like that, to um, you have better favor, if you will, to the increased blessings of God being poured out to you, whether for uh, financial favor or for, for health and healing. Now, guys, this is a touchy subject, so I don't want to I don't want to go into saying that just because someone is sick, that they're not doing the, the will of God or the favor of God. Um, I'm not talking about that at all. Um, I'm just saying that in a general sense, the father has asked all of mankind to do his behavior and all these things will go well with you. And if you don't, things like invasion by your enemies, sickness and disease will come upon you. So how did we get to the Hebrew Israelites being oppressed by this new Pharaoh? It was because the old Pharaoh was invaded by his enemies. Mm. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The king of canaan who was ruling in samaria in assyria saw that the current king of egypt was weak and it came and attacked him and overtook him 
where that was what 200 years or so after joseph when nobody tried to mess with egypt they were the most prosperous people in the region you know what i'm saying they 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 were and and guess what joseph was leading them according to the commandments as a righteous ruler and they had the they had the favor of god on them right they were blessed in, in egypt and also in, of course in the land of goshen as well so all i'm trying to say is we see just like in yahweh telling abraham um, after 400 years, I'll bring your people back up here because the, the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. Well, once it becomes full, they become susceptible to invasion by their enemies, even if that enemy happens to be Israel at the time, right? Because they've transgressed the eternal instructions for all of mankind, so much so that now judgment is looming. Now they're and under so, a curse, right? Yeah, they've cursed themselves. And so that's all that's all i was trying to get at and i just felt like this song kind of expounded or this chapter expounded upon that general premise that even though we talk so much about israel being being grafted into israel in faith and belief and how you're doing covenant behavior that is expected of you of yahweh it's actually expected of all mankind but yahweh gives you a special invitation and to say if you want to literally have my name on you and be a part of my family and come live with me in my house in the future forever and be a part of a priesthood that rules and reigns to help bring other children in. Well, you, you now's the time to get involved with that. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Now's the time to jump in on that special offer. If I can sound like <laughs> bad, you know, seen on TV special where some some salesman's like, now's the time to get a part of Covenant Israel. Okay. Call now. Repent <laughs> of your sins yeah. and call now. Right? Like, <laughs> but wait. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> wait, there's more. Circumcision required in the back room. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's that's just the idea. Like he's he's offering that special, um, that special thing to say if you want to be grafted in Israel, you can be, and then there you can you need to do the signs of the behaviors of the covenant once that happens. Hmm. So anyway, that's that's really what stuck out to me um, within this. But I'm sure there's there's so much more in this. What about you guys? Yeah, Deuteronomy eleven twenty six through twenty eight comes to mind. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I commanded you this day to go after other gods, which you have not known. Exactly mm -hmm. what we see there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Besides, you know, parts of the text being eschatological in nature, specifically verse 17, right? Yeah, right. About the place that he has prepared for us. The sanctuary. Uh, we see that, yeah, all throughout scriptures. Um, what stuck out to me this time was uh, Miriam, uh, the prophetess, and all the women coming out with the tambourines and dancing and praising. Uh, that reminded me of Tobit chapter 12, verse 6, where it says, Praise God and give thanks to him. Exalt him and give thanks to him in the presence of all the living for what he has done for you. It is good to praise God and exalt his name, worthily declaring the works of God, do not be slow to give him thanks. And um, I just love how they went out and praised him right then and there immediately. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe Moses took some time to to write the lyrics and everything. But, you know, I, I just love how they all went in and just praised him with it's dancing probably, and singing. Probably a freestyle. I'd like probably. to hear his freestyle. Yeah. Filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> there you go. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, we yeah. also have uh, here in 1 Samuel 10, 5, um, this is... Uh, I'll just use this one real quick. It says, um, this seems to be a thing that the prophets did. Yeah, I can make it bigger mm -hmm. real quick. So after that, you'll come to Gibeah. This is Samuel talking to Saul, saying you're going to go to Gibeah, which is where Bethel was and where the temple of God was, where the Philistines have an outpost. And as you approach the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place, preceded by harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres, and they will be prophesying. Uh-oh. Mm -hmm. 
So here we have Miriam, prophetess, um, grab some other women. They start doing this exact same behavior in their joy and exuberance. And, I, and this is what was going on here as well. And then, of course, that's when, you know, Saul ran into this and the spirit of God rushed on him and he started prophesying as well. So it's very interesting. Um, just the, the, the similarity, if you will, of it seemed to be a practice of the prophets of being excited and sharing that and the song and dancing and, you know, and um, that in itself was a, which is, which is a version of prophesying because you're yeah. edifying, comforting and encouraging others by what you're singing and praises to the Lord. Yeah. The enemy yeah. will be, be defeated. It's even almost prophetic in the sense that I'm reminded of the, the riders of the, the horsemen, right? The horsemen in revelation and how isn't one of them representative of Apollyon. Of, that's my understanding yeah. right so if he's the horseman right and then he's the king of babylon and then you got mother babylon being tossed into the into the waters there's also a prophetic sense in that right the, the rider of the horse is tossed into the water maybe trying yeah. to reach for a connection possibly <laughs> it's all right yeah i but i do love just like a, a lot of the other prophecies we've seen isaiah and jeremiah moses has the same pattern he he's talking about immediate events at the beginning but then he switches to kingdom come events. So, and he's, it's like, he's connecting the two, right? Jeremiah and Isaiah do this all the time. And it's like, he starts off talking about, Oh, he, he destroyed Pharaoh and overcame him, drowned in the Red Sea, uh, horse and chariot drowned. They couldn't stand up. And then he's going to take us and he's going to plant us in his holy mountain forever his eternal sanctuary. You know what I'm saying? We're going to like, so then you go into that full fulfillment promise where I, I, mm -hmm. I just, I can't stress enough guys. These people all knew the gospel of the kingdom. They all yes. knew it. It was inherent in the promise of the covenant. They would be resurrected to eternal life. The Garden of Eden was going to return. Yahweh and his son are going to literally live up on the earth amongst men. Um, they're carrying with them, as Jubilees 44 tells us, the books of Levi's fathers going all the way back to Enoch. They're carrying them with them on this journey right here. Like, so anyway, I just can't stress enough. They knew the gospel of the kingdom. This was mm -hmm. this is a consistent message, you know. This is the message the enemies tried to shadow over and hide all this time and get us fighting about dispensation theology or preterism or whatever nonsense is out there, right? This, but this is the consistent message in scripture that Yeshua talked about. The kingdom is coming, the father and the son and their house are coming down, and they're gonna stop all these bad guys from doing this stuff, create peace on the earth, resurrect you to eternal life, and you are planted on his holy mountain. It's it's a wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful promise, right? You you get to the, the ultimate fulfillment of why he created you. Um, so I, Moses knew this story 100%. Yes, sir. Your yeah. eyes will behold a king in his glory and a land that stretches afar, right? Isaiah? Isaiah 33, yeah. Thank you. So here, uh, just as a quick summary, Nexus 15, it says, on the other side of the Red Sea, Moses sang a song about how Yahweh saved them. He mentioned the defeat of Pharaoh and his armies. He praised Yahweh for being incomparable to other gods. And he, he is too powerful and full of loving devotion towards his people he redeemed. He sang about how the other nations would be terrified after hearing what Yahweh did for them. Miriam and other women began singing and dancing, praising Yahweh for defeating Pharaoh. And then Moses took the Israelites to the desert of Shur, a three days walk. The people complained because there was no water. They found water, which was bitter at Marah, but Yahweh instructed Moses to sweeten the waters by throwing a log into it. I'm guessing the log had sap in it, some mm -hmm. sort of sorghum or something. I don't know. Um, Yahweh through Moses instructed the people to be obedient to his commands, which of course he does this all the time, right? He's constantly reminding them, please be obedient to my commands and statutes and everything. It's going to go just fine, and you're going to have love for one another. It's going to be great. But uh, mankind just needs constant reminders of these things. So <laughs> is there anything else in this chapter that you guys want to touch on? 
I can't think of anything else. Nope. All right, I guys. Want, I just want to try some of that sweet water. Right. Sweet log yeah. water. Sweet That's log cool. water. <laughs> yeah, what kind of logs are we talking about here? You know, what's what is this stuff? And here's the thought I was trying to understand, which was I mean, you got a whole bunch of people. What kind of water was this? What kind of collection of like did the water collect in some kind of natural basin or reservoir so that then it you know was coming up out of a spring or something and then it collected and then you could throw the water in that and they just dipped out of that because otherwise did you have to create some sort of filtration system where the water ran through the log i had no idea i mean i'm just sitting here like how does this work man <laughs> or is just this just a miracle kind of thing yeah. right I, I don't know but speaking of miracles guys we're going to read about some crazy miracles here in the next chapter so i'll cool. jump into 16. let's do it all right. Chapter 16, verse 1, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had left the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of Israel set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sen, which is between Elim and Sinai. And there in the desert, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. If we only had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, they said, there we sat by pots of meat and ate our full fill of bread. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this whole assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Each day the people are to go out and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test whether or not they will follow my instructions. Then on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other, other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory, because he has heard your grumblings against him. For who are we that, that we should, you should grumble against us? And Moses added, the Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and bread to fill in the morning, for he has heard your grumblings against him. Who are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, tell the whole congregation of Israel, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as Aaron was speaking to the whole congregation of Israel, they looked toward the desert and there in a cloud and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew had evaporated, there were thin flakes on the desert floor, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, What is this? For they did not know what it was. So Moses told them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. You may take an omer for each person in your tent. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered more, some less. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no shortfall. Each one gathered as much as he needed to eat. Then Moses said to him, No one may keep any of it until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning, and it became infested with maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, each one, every morning, each one gathered as much as, he, as was needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, two omers per person, and all the leaders of the congregation came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is to be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, and then set aside whatever remains and keep it until morning. So they set it aside until morning as Moses had commanded, and it did not smell or contain any maggots. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find anything in the field. For six days you may gather, but on the seventh, the Sabbath, it will not be there. Yet on the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they did not find anything. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. This is why on the sixth day he will give you bread for two days. 
And on the seventh, everyone must stay where he is. No one may leave his place. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, the house of Israel called the bread manna. It was white, like coriander seed, and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Keep an omer of manna for the generations to come, so that they may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So Moses told Aaron, take a jar and fill it with an omer of manna. Then place it before the Lord to be preserved for the generations to come. And Aaron placed it in front of the testimony to be preserved, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land where they could settle. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. Okay. So we've got uh, we've got some interesting stuff going on here, guys. Just this is a huge chapter. It what is. are your thoughts? The manna is so interesting to me, right? Mm-hmm. Angel bread. Angel, <laughs> Angel bread. Yeah. That's the, it, the original wonder bread. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it tasted like uh, wafers with honey. Interesting stuff. Um, what else was I going to say about that? That I like. I don't know. Go ahead. <laughs> what about you, Hannibal? What comes to mind during this chapter? Oh, obviously, I want to taste uh, manna, and I was wondering if uh, uh, the loaf of bread that Elijah receives from an angel, and I think it's First Kings uh, chapter nineteen, verse four or five. I wonder yeah. if that was uh, bread made with manna uh, or something else that came from heaven above, uh, because it nourished him for a you know forty day walk uh, together right. with the water. Um, we also see in um, Wisdom of Solomon chapter sixteen, uh, verse twenty to twenty six, that. Um, Manna not only tasted like honey with wafer, but it satisfied everyone's specific palate. Uh, I don't know how that worked, but it uh, satisfied their taste buds. So yeah, yeah. now there's a I don't I don't know if I quite agree with this or believe this, but there is a a Jewish tradition that uh, the manna caused them to not need to have a bowel movement. <laughs> like Kim Jong Un. No. Well, yeah. Yeah. That, exactly. mean like, uh, that means that their body is able to absorb everything, right? And there's right. no. Yeah. Always, yeah. yeah, it just makes me think like, because then you start getting into the nitty gritty of like, yeah, so they, okay, so everywhere they moved in camp, that means they just left a huge trail of buried poo. Mm. Like they just fertilized the land everywhere they went. Just millions yeah. of people just pooing and just walking, <laughs> and burying, burying it. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. So speaking of things touching the ground, um, things falling to the ground. Yahweh describes the the manna as raining down, mm-hmm. and then he talks about it melting if they didn't pick it up. Yeah, once the sun, the noonday heat rose. Right, what kind of bread melts? I don't know. Right, fluffy Melt- light bread, maybe. It comes down with the dew we see. Right. Mm-hmm. What kind of bread rains? Hmm. Like it's this is crazy, guys. Yeah. This is crazy. So we're we're gonna talk about that a little bit more here in just a second. But I'm gonna run through some of these these uh, bullet points here for the summary. Um, just under one month after leaving Egypt, the Israelites camped between Sinai and Elam in the desert. They complained to Moses because they didn't have any meat to eat. Um, this was something. This is just them being catty, man. They're like, we could have died where we're eating meat, and he, Yahweh could have killed us in Egypt where we had meat at least. Like this is just so petty, these people. Um, but uh, yeah, I you know. Father, Father, look, help me look at my own heart, right? If I've ever been like oh, this, because yeah. boy, oh boy, like I, but again, this is just, this is why uh, continually the Father is willing to do these types of miracles so that their heart would be softened, right? Then that's why Yahweh or Moses tells him, look, he's going to do this so that you know it was he that brought you out of Egypt. 
because yeah. apparently they still they still aren't convinced even to the point here about a month or two later they they start worshiping Baal again and they claim oh here's the god that brought us out of egypt you know so like they yeah moses is just he's he's he sees that these people are struggling with their hearts and their attitudes. Uh, Yahweh told Moses he would rain down bread from heaven, but that he would use it as a test of obedience for the people. Um, this is something that we always try to remind folks that the Father doesn't tempt you to sin. He tests you to be obedient. That's right. It's a, it's a consistent thing throughout Scripture. We see this um, expounded in Deuteronomy 8, 6. Ex, I'm sorry, 8, 16 real quick. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, with, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Hmm. I like it. It's, yeah, there it is. So this whole thing was designed to get their hearts right. Um, but as the manna came with specific instructions for gathering, storing, and eating, Yahweh also promised that he would give them meat that very evening. He caused the winds to change and drove a covey of quails to fall into the camp. I, I learned something new here, guys, this week, that uh, a group of quails can be called a flock, a covey, or a bevy. So there's your Jeopardy trivia for this, this week. Um, yep. The next morning, the manna had appeared on the ground underneath the dew. It was white and flaky with the taste of coriander and honey wafer. I don't know what, I don't know what kind of thing it, 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 this is that... The dew can dissipate and evaporate, but this thing that can melt is still there as well. To be able to have like maggots and stuff in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, th there's something unique about this, and and we'll jump into it. But the manna melted quickly and would rot overnight if not cooked. The people were instructed to pre-cook their double portion before the Sabbath, as no manna fell on the Sabbath. And guys, many people who've watched this channel for some time know that I've done an entire. Uh, morning cup of context video on can we cook on the sabbath a lot of people like to use this chapter as a proof text that they think it's saying that you cannot cook on the sabbath mm. what i read from here is not that at all but it's that you cannot gather on the sabbath you can't go and gather your food that you need to cook on the sabbath which is exactly what jubilees 2 and jubilees <laughs> you cut out a little bit there sean oh i'm sorry um yeah so yeah, sorry about that. I didn't know I cut out. Just so, the last uh, sentence. Yeah, just saying that, um, that from my understanding of this instruction, the manna melted, so they didn't, they couldn't keep it the next day to cook it the next day. Right. So the, this isn't a proof text to say that you can't cook on the Sabbath and prepare your food no, normally. This is to say don't gather your food on the Sabbath, which is could be considered work, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the stuff's dropping and falling to you anyway. All you got to do is go outside your tent a little bit and pick it up anyway. But if even though that's considered as in, as in working to gather your food, don't gather your food on the Sabbath, but gather twice as much on the sixth day. That way you don't because there, there won't be any together on the Sabbath. And if you don't pre-cook the double portion that you gathered on the sixth day, it's going to go bad by the next day anyway. So you just logically you got to yeah. cook it, got to go ahead right. and cook it so it yeah. can be preserved and you can eat something on the seventh day. So this was just practical instructions. Um, what what comes to mind, guys, for you? Well, the, the context of it was for a specific event, like you're saying that it wasn't, it's not something we can then say, okay, we, you know, we can't cook on, on the Sabbath now because of that, because of this exact, you know, event that was something specific to that time and that, uh, that occurrence. Thank you, Hannibal, for dropping that link. But yeah, this, we did a whole video on this. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of context here because we got a whole bunch of other passages where, it's normal to to cook and feed your family on the Sabbath, right? You don't have to. It's a feast you don't day. Have, it is. It's a feast day. It's all the Sabbaths mm -hmm. are. So, all right, guys. And then lastly, we have um, Yahweh reminded them that the seventh day is the Sabbath and should be a day of rest so that people wouldn't look for manna on that day. And what's interesting is even in this story, 
where he's given them instructions on how specifically to deal with this manna in regards to the, the Sabbath, he reminds them that the seventh day is the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. So just throwing that out there. Um, Moses was instructed to keep a portion of the manna in a jar as a testament of how Yahweh fed them after bringing them out of Egypt. I wonder how long that, that manna lasted in that jar. Hmm. And what I, was, I wonder who ate it and what happened to it. <laughs> I wondered how much was a tenth of an ephah, how much an omer was, just out of curiosity, and I had to look it up, that it's an, uh, an omer is an ancient Israelite unit of dry measure used in the era of the temple in Jerusalem, well, obviously before that too, right? And it is used in the Bible as an ancient unit of volume for grains and dry commodities. The Torah mentions it being equal to being one-tenth of an ephah. In traditional Jewish standards of measurement, the omer was equivalent to the capacity, and check this out, of 43.2 eggs. That's how they that's how they determined it. It's about 43 and a half eggs, and which which would be the equivalent of 5.5 pounds in today's understanding. Yeah, about five and a half pounds is an uh, omer. I didn't realize the egg was a standard of measurement. I know that's hilarious. Yeah, but uh, but guys, the, the whole conversation about the manna it actually is leading us into this week's <clears throat> theological rabbit trail. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta love Why it. was manna called the bread of angels? I got this. No, go ahead, Hannibal. <laughs> no, go ahead. Because <laughs> angels eat food. They're corporal. They have bodies. They, <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes. Angels eat the food. So, guys, here in Psalm 78, 23 to 25, it, it is this is where we get the statement that men ate the bread of angels. And specifically in regards to the manna being rained down. So verse 23 says, Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for them to eat. He gave them grain from heaven. Man ate the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. So not only is it called bread, but it's even qualified as grain. Oh, yeah. And it's being rained down from heaven. Now, the descriptions in Exodus 16 says that it actually rained down with the, evaporate, with the dew that then evaporated off the top of it. And that this bread... This grain melts if you don't if it gets too late in the day and the sun rises. So you got to pick it up early when it's still chilled outside. So that means it's chilled. So this is some sort of grain, this food. It's, and he says he's raining it down from heaven that is able to melt. And it doesn't last for more than 24 hours. You have to cook it into an eatable form. That's that's crazy to me that it can melt, but you could also cook it. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? Because yeah. what's different? This the 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 sunlight that melts it is different from fire. Ah, mm. okay, right. I also noticed that and, it's, it has the, the. Go ahead, my bad. No, and and the property of the sunlight could also be different than than the light that emanates from the Father in their level of heaven, right? So that's, that's the why that they live it, in. It's completely different from the light source that we have. So yeah, uh, exactly. That's that's exactly why, in my understanding, why it only lasted twenty four hours once it got here. Mm. Uh, yeah. So this we're is, we're under the sun, and the angels aren't. They're above it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. They have their own source of light, which is not the sunlight. So that whatever. Okay, so here's some descriptors I wrote down about the manna. It rained down, which is unusual for food. <laughs> Usually, it grows up. Right. Mm -hmm. So it rained down. It found under the it was found under the evaporated dew, which like we talked about how to just to do evaporate, but not this until a certain point. It would melt in the in the sunlight and the heat. I should probably put the sunlight instead of the heat, but it would melt in the heat. But it could be cooked as bread. 
-hmm. would it would rot and acquire worms after 24 hours it was white and thin flakes they thought it was like frost like snow so that's like that's very fine fine coriander seed yeah and it tasted like coriander and honey meaning it was sweet so guys from my understanding this is a uh um this is called the bread of angels as as we see here in psalm 78 mm-hmm. and do we take that as poetic or do we think that this is literal well we know that they literally ate it they literally it ate literal, it. it was literal food yeah but d- yeah. was this literally like the angels is well, this was, the same stuff the angels eat there was a literal angel with them right so yeah i'm just seeing a lot of literalness <laughs> that would be hard to yeah. ignore yeah, it, to me, I'm I'm thinking to myself. Okay, so, all right. Since we all understand biblical cosmology, well, the Father is described as creation. This says it rained down from heaven. Now we understand that there's multiple uses of the word heaven in the scriptures. Uh, one can be for the clouds in the air and the sky. Another one can be for the physical structure of the firmament that encloses the plane of the earth. Um, and then, of course, in the plural, you say that you know the heavens means there's multiple layers of the heaven above where the angels and the father live. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I'm wondering if this was from the first application where it's literally rained down from the sky, from the heavens above, from the clouds, hmm. why it would come down as a dew in the morning. But here's where it gets interesting. All of heaven above, the, this quote-unquote spiritual realm of creation, it's composed from what I can understand of water. Mm-hmm. So this is where we would see parallels with John three, five through six, where Jesus is trying to explain the resurrections in Nicodemus. And he says that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and spirit. Baptism, but, right? No. Baptism. Yes. <laughs> but I'm talking about your, your physical resurrected bodies. When we're promised to be made like the angels, right? What kind of material substance are angels made of? Right. Water and spirit. Mm-hmm. Water and spirit. John 20, 19 through 20, we see a resurrected Yeshua who has his glorified body. And it says on the first day of the week, that very evening, while the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you, said to them. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Mm-hmm. How, so he's showing up in a locked room. Mm-hmm. How does how does he do that in a, from a scientific physics standpoint? He can dematerialize and rematerialize. Yeah. What is the medium through which he materializes and dematerializes as like angels do? The moisture in the air. That's right. Know. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's gotta be. What, what was the earth created? First Peter 2. The earth Waters. was created in and wow. out of water. Yeah. Wow. So what do we see in Acts 12, 7 through 9? Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed and put on your sandals, said the angel. Peter did so. The angel told him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So Peter followed him out, but he was unaware that the angel was doing what he was doing was real. He thought he was only seeing a vision. Hmm. The angel just appeared out of nowhere, just like Jesus in that locked room. But this is inside of a jail cell, right? Yep. So the only way you get in there is through moisture, which is in the air, which is everywhere in the air, right? This is how they're traveling because they're made of the moisture. And the moisture, and this is why even modern-day scientists today don't understand water. It Mm -hmm. fascinates them. The properties of water they're still exploring, still trying to figure out. 
Yeah. It is. It was the building block of all of creation was the moisture mm -hmm. and the water itself. So for my, from what I'm seeing, and let me go ahead and finish this last verse, but what I'm seeing, it seems as if this manna was, was like just the father saying, look, I, I made everything. I formed it out of the water. Anyway, I can just make some bread for you right here out of the, out of the moisture of the air. It's going to be under the dew. Um, and literally, that's how he makes all of existence above us that's also comprised of water and spirit, mm -hmm. which is why he would call it the food of angels, because it, it probably would last longer up there, right? Not being, like you said, not being under the light of the sun. But at the same time of like, how, how did he create food above the ferment? How are the, that Yeshua comes back on a white horse. Is that mm -hmm. horse made of flesh? I'm really reminded, do y'all remember, surely somebody in the chat does, um, in like 1998, Nickelodeon had a show called The Secret World of Alex Mack. Do you remember this? I don't. She could she no. could dematerialize and materialize, but she would turn into this puddle. <laughs> mm. she, she'd drop down into a puddle on the ground and just like could seep through doorways and stuff and then rematerialize into the person. That was her that's, superpower. <laughs> wow, man, that's a, that's a deep dive. Nice, deep cut there. Um, I never saw that show, though. The Secret World of Who? Alex Mack. Alex Mack. Yeah, Interesting. Throwback 1994 through 98. Interesting. Yeah. So how how interesting is it here in John 6, 20 through 35? Jesus replied, The work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he sent. So they asked him, What sign will you then perform so that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our fathers ate the men of the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread, but from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of, of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread at all times. <laughs> These people are this is hilarious <laughs> response to me. Third, verse 35, Jesus answered, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. I don't think it's any coincidence. He's talking about being filled life. with food. Be calling himself the bread of life and saying, if you partake in him, you will neither hunger nor thirst, which mm -hmm. is what they were filled with the manna, which was made from a substance that can melt. And now Yeshua yeah. is literally made of water and spirit. And now Yeshua. Bread of life. So he's water, spirit, bread. Now he is like the it. full embodiment of, of everything that is the, the realm of heaven, everything that's made from a form of water yeah. and spirit, which is crazy to me because... That means when he spit moisture into the dude's eye and remade his eye, he used the moisture. Mm -hmm. So I think we're, and that's, remember the other guy, he had him uh, to go after he spit in his eye and he said, now go dip yourself in the water, go clean yourself. And then mm -hmm. when he came up, he could see. So like, I, I, I don't think there's a coincidence here with the water. I think that the, the waters of all the earth and like, like we're literally it's funny you mentioned an egg earlier. We're literally encased like an egg in the Shomayim, in the covering of water. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's still waters above us. There's waters below us. There's waters in, that we breathe water. It's just such a fine, gaseous form. And, of course, water can't be destroyed. Nice. It, it, it turns into a solid state, a liquid state, or a gaseous state. Mm -hmm. So I think this is, this is a fascinating concept with the manna that he, I mean, I truly believe he... Rep, he manifested with the water, just like he does with all of creation. He manifested food that of how he creates it in heaven for heaven above, mm -hmm. or or the grain, I should say, right? Because it's you know the 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 core material that you could then cook and bake into bread. Right. And one other 
passage about the manna before we move off of it. Numbers 11 says, now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance was like that of bedellium. I had to look that up. It's shiny. Bedellium is, says a fragrant resin produced by a number of trees related to myrrh <laughs> used in That's perfumes. So yeah, it's, it's like that. And then it says uh, that they could boil it in the pot, make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. But like we were saying earlier, but wait, there's more because Revelation 2.17 says to him who overcomes to him, I will give some of the hidden manna and the treasuries right in 2 Baruch 29 uh, talks about it as well. It shall come to pass that at the same, same, no, at the self same time that the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high and they will eat of it in those years because these are they who have come to the consummation of time. So it's part of prophecy as well. Yep. It's, it's amazing, right? So exciting. Even the survivors of the Day of Lord, Esther, Leviathan, and, and Behemoth run out. There's he's he's got other ways to feed them with food perpetually until mm -hmm. we get some crops growing. Until you know, what I'm saying like it's going to be pretty amazing um, that he can just manifest. Okay, so I guess what I'm trying to get at, guys, is if he took the earth that was in water and out of water, and he started to create man from the earth, well, even in the dirt that he pulled and created and breathed the breath of life into, there was water in that dirt. Mm -hmm. yeah. See what I'm saying? And to me, it's just fascinating that that he's now saying, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna make some bread for you guys to eat because I care about you. And I love you." Just like I'm so glad you read that second Baruch passage because I was gonna I didn't want to make a slide of it because I I don't want to. But yeah, it's great. It's a great reference because it's it's not. Um, how do I say this? I don't I don't want to get derailed off into like uh, the millennial reign too much, you know, because of where we're going next. But right. But the comparison is that's an incredibly large group of people that he also is is uh, sparing, lovingly sparing. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And he's going to attempting to bring them into covenant. Exactly, and he's yeah. providing all types of food for them too, both meat and bread. You know, so like God's ways are consistent, yeah. and uh, and how he can create and make, he just needs water. That's like his basic building block of life. All right, so. We're going to actually talk about this a little bit further as we jump into our Mark 6 companion passage. But for now, um, that was our theological rabbit trail. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, we got Exodus 17. Uh, is it your turn, Hannibal? Yep. All right. All right. Exodus chapter 17. Then the whole congregation of Israel left the desert of sin, moving from place to place as Yahweh commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people contended with Moses, Give us water to drink. Why do you contend with me? Moses replied. Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses cried out to Yahweh, What should I do with these people? A little more, and they will stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Walk on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take along in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, and when you strike the rock, water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah, because the, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? After this, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with the staff of God in my hand, Joshua did as Moses had instructed him and fought against the Amalekites. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill, as long as Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. 
but when they lowered them, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Then Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on each side, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his army with the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua, because I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it Yahweh is my banner. Indeed, he said, a hand was lifted up towards the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will war against Amalek from generation to generation. Awesome. Thank you, brother. Thank you. So we have uh, chapter 17 here in Exodus. There's a, yep. they, so they, did you guys recognize that they're at the base of Mount Sinai? Mm-hmm. Here at Rephidim, this area between in the in the desert of Sam, uh, they moved away from where they were, and then they went to Rephidim. So, I my understanding was that this was at the at at the area based at Mount Sinai because that's where the Rock of Horeb is that he that mm-hmm. he struck. Yeah. So, is it possible that the rest of chapter eighteen and nineteen and twenty through, or actually through like thirty three, the whole backdrop, like if you had a camera on top of Mount Sinai and you pointed it down to stare at the encampments of the Israelites all spread out behind them in the open spaces behind them. You just see a bunch of graves where they defeat the Amalekites. Mm-hmm. Oh, Possible. Wow. Possible. I think Indeed. it's uh, interesting that even here in the beginning of the chapter, like always they complained, but they're already at the location, right? Because in the beginning yeah. of the book of Exodus, Moses tells us, let us go to this mountain so we may worship our God. And now they're there and they're still like, well, <laughs> you know, why did you bring us here to, to, to kill us? And um, I don't know if uh, I think it was Westblade that mentioned the uh, what's it the documentary about um, looking up the, the path that they did during the Exodus, and I think they found that stone, and that stone is absolutely gigantic. It's huge. Is it? And, I haven't yeah. seen the perspective. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's so big. Uh, maybe Sean can find a picture. But uh, I find it interesting that the angel said, you know, bring uh, the elders, and I will wait for you at the stone. Um, and you know. Um, just so that they could have faith in Moses, just like we see that happening throughout Exodus, that um, the Father is not only trying to instill fear and faith in him through the miracle signs and wonders, but also in his uh, in his agent, his servant Moses. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think something that we can see throughout this whole portion specifically is that when you're not doing the behavior of the covenant, uh, you sort of grow this intense crazy level of pessimism where you can't even recognize the good and we and i know people uh, me included right recently everything that you see in the news that even if something good happens you don't believe that it's actually good you know you think it's a conspiracy and everything is working against you um everything that seems to be good you just immediately don't want to believe it right because uh, i think it's proverbs uh, 13 somewhere you know hope deferred makes the heart sick uh, so people have been hurt so many times that they can't even place their trust in the father because they don't even want to, you know, expose themselves to the chance of being hurt again. And I, I think yeah. I think it's super sad. And I really can, you know, I can see myself uh, and I'm not, you know, like these like this believer that's <laughs> walking on water compared to these Israelites. I can re- literally see myself uh, that uh, even though the miracles of the father are all around me, you know, I'm just in such a stinky place sometimes that, yeah. you know, you're just very pessimistic. And, I feel you. It can yeah. be. It's <laughs> yeah. sad too because they were you're, they were trapped in bondage and slavery, and there was no telling yeah. how much longer that would have happened. They were on a course to having their you know their bloodline wiped out because they were mm-hmm. having the firstborn killed. Or yeah, and so then you got that going on. They got a literal angel 
<laughs> leading them, protecting yeah. them. The miracle's happening, and they're still like, man, we could have just died there. And yeah. we could have stayed in enslavement. Yeah, yeah. like uh, Hannibal mentioned, that the whole start of this whole story was Moses with, with his brother went to the Israelite leaders and told them, we're, we're going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let you go because we're going to take three days journey into the wilderness to, to worship Yahweh. You know, so they all knew from the beginning what was supposed to the whole reason they were supposed to leave Egypt. And it's like it just reminds me of the antagonistic troll whom, you know, like we see this in politics. No matter what you do, they're going to twist what you do and say and try to make it be you to be the bad guy. Right. So even though they have arrived with miraculous provision and protection, they've arrived at the place where they initially were told they were going to be taken to begin with. Mm -hmm. Once they get there, they're still like, oh, goodness, you brought us out here to die. Mm -hmm. Like, bro, yep. he told you he brought you out here to worship, which means you have all these animals you had to bring with you too. Remember when Mar Moses bartered with Pharaoh mm -hmm. or Pharaoh tried to barter with Moses in the, to leave your animals behind? And you're like, no, we got to take our animals too. Cause when we get there, we don't know how yet we're going to worship, you know? And so like, it just, to me, it's like, the, it's an antagonism. And I agree yeah. with you. It's because of a loss of hope. It reminds me of that uh, movie, the X-Men movie from like 2015, where, um, what was it? Uh, Days of Future Past. where like, there, the young Professor X is talking to the old Professor X, or no, the old is talking to the young, and he's like, "We need you to hope again." Yeah, you know, and it's like, <laughs> it's like yeah. Yahweh just grabbing these Israelites. It's like, "I need you to hope again," right? You know, because they're just acting a fool every turn. We see the same thing when we're just trying to bring clarity and truth and contextual understanding of the word, yeah. and and just telling people truth. Period. Right in general. And they're resistant to it and they they want to distrust what we have to say no matter how much evidence we can bring to them no matter yeah. if there was a literal angel standing there right so I, I did find a picture of this rock um i couldn't find a anything to give it a scale of scope but it's a massive rock coming up out of the mm -hmm. mountainside Apparently, and yeah and this water supposedly if you see like an aerial view uh the hill the bottom of this hill where the rock is is kind of the pinnacle is a huge basin that water could have flowed out and filled into a huge basin like a pond. Yep. Hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. For some context on the scale, if you were to stand at the base of that rock, your head would not even reach where the crack starts. Uh -uh. Like really? Yeah. It's That's huge. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. So then, yeah, definitely him with his little staff, you know, 81-year-old 80, man with a little staff tapping the rock ain't going to bust it open mm -hmm. naturally. So. And apparently archaeologists who've analyzed the rock say that there's evidence of like numerous streams, water erosion that came yep. forth in several directions from the base nice. of it. Nice. Yeah. So in my head, I just see the angel sitting on top of that rock and saying, this one, Moses, hit it. <laughs> just showing him. But yeah. it's uh... Oh, wait a minute, guys. Wait a minute. So when the Amal Amalekites attacked, do you, does that mean like Oh wow! Do you think that they showed up and like that that morning they showed up? There was some manna on the ground when they got closer to the camp. I wonder how what perimeter did the manna fall? Because wouldn't that be crazy yeah. if like you're you're traveling through the desert of a wilderness, you know, uh, where there's not even any water, and then you suddenly mm -hmm. get to a spot where like you're seeing snow on the ground, what looks like right. snow. Right. The closer you get to this, like your whole perception is a huge red flag yeah. like don't they you might not want to attack these dudes but uh i think it's interesting because amalek of course comes from canaan and uh who was the egyptian pharaoh that yahweh just defeated where did he originally come from canaan so it just makes me wonder um and then moses's song where he said you know the philistia uh the who else the canaanites and who else um 
somebody else. He names the Moabites. They're all trembling yeah. in fear. They're all scared. And so here it is the Amalekites, you know, they're deciding we're going to create an eternal enemy with Yahweh by trying to attack them on the way. And so they come and try to take them out at the base of Mount Sinai, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And doesn't Deuteronomy 25, I think 17 to 19, tell us that uh, Am- the Amalekites attacked them because they thought they were weak and they attacked them from the rear, going for the weakest, weakest ones first. They had no fear of God. And, uh, you know, I, I just love how <laughs> uh, God is telling Moses through the angel that, you know, write, write, write this down because I'm going to wipe them out from under the heaven. It's, uh, you know, such a powerful statement. And um, I think you brought it up in a video uh, previously that um, Haman from the book of Esther, uh, it mentions in chapter 9, verse 24, that he's actually from the line of Agag. So, uh, and he got he got handled uh, swiftly. So, yeah, yeah. it's, it's true. That, that was a uh, descendant of the Amalekites. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, because they were still around during the days of even David. So even though they lost this battle, they weren't wiped out completely. Mm-hmm. So, yep. yeah. Um, and uh, my wife claimed that she saw a documentary several years ago of a guy who claimed to be the family of, of the Amalekites and that his family mm-hmm. told him growing up that they were um, uh, that the God of the Bible was their enemy. Right. Like, that's that's crazy. <laughs> like, this is in this is in like 2009. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. You know, like. You know, I, I, I was privileged to be raised by uh, my pastor, you know, so I, I had growing up with the familiarity of the Bible and that meant mindset and understanding. But like there's some people around the world that they don't have a clue, man. They don't have a clue. Yeah. Their families are raising them to literally tell them that, oh, that religion over there, that's our enemy. You know, yeah. and that's just it saddens me so much, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy that um, people from occult families, they believe in the stories in the Bible more than some professed Christians sometimes, which is unfortunate, yeah. you know, that don't take well, yeah. the, the, old, the Old Testament as actual history. And, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly what Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was doing. Mm-hmm. Was It was like, okay, so just like all the, um, there, okay, so let me say this the right way. There is a, in the, I think it's the, um, I think it's the history of the Jews, or the, I can't remember the name of the, the book, but one of the chronicles that Josephus put down, he talks about how the, the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, they knew the Israelites were going to return. And so that's why they built all these fortified cities that battled already, right? Now, that's Josephus's perspective. I don't see that in any actual scripture, but it's interesting because what do we see? The new pharaoh, the new king of Egypt that took over, who was formerly the king of Canaan, what is what is he doing? He's trying to oppress the people that are that are destined to come back to take over his land, his original yeah. land. And the Amalekites from the land of Canaan, try to stop the Israelites from coming back to take over their land. So like it's it's as if they knew and were preparing or trying to prevent this from coming to fulfillment. You know, yeah. it's like the bad guys it's knew. Like, it's like revelations, right? When they're gathering for the coming of our Messiah. They know. Exactly. You know. Exactly. It's almost yeah. as if possibly they were even warned by a prophet like, "Hey, if y'all don't repent and turn to yeah. the most high God, then this is going to yeah. happen." Could be, yeah. Could have been from the, one of the descendants of Esau, or or just one of the leftovers that lived in the land of Canaan still after the death of Jacob that ne- never went back mm-hmm. to Goshen. Yeah, well, there's that's that's what I'm excited about, guys. When we get to the Father's house, and we yeah. get to just see all the chronicles of all the things recorded and the details that we never saw, and right. like how the Father was moving in every place all the time, and we just never knew it. You know, it's just yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot here, guys. Real quick, the summary here in Exodus 17. Yahweh moved the people to territory of Rephidim, and the people complained because there was no water for them or their livestock. Yahweh, through the angel of the presence that accompanied them, he instructed Moses to use his staff and strike the rock at the base of Mount Sinai, and water would erupt from the rock. That location was also named Massah and Meribah because the people tested Yahweh there. The Amalekites attacked the... Oh, by the way, Yahweh can test man, but we don't test Yahweh. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. He he tests us for obedience all day long, but we don't have to test him. He's he's always faithful and good, right? We can so ask him to, yeah, we can ask him to prove yeah. himself, but it's yeah. not just him testing him. Yeah, yeah, we're not we're not testing him as in doubting him, and, and especially with malice of accusation like these guys, like they're they're slandering Yahweh, right? They're like mm-hmm. he brought us out here to kill us. Like how many times are they going to say that? It's old. It's tired. It's played out. Stop it, you know. So, but yeah, they're definitely testing him in negative connotation. The location that was also uh, the the Amalekites attacked the Israelites at Rephidim, and Joshua led the ground forces in the battle while Moses held his hands up from a nearby mountaintop. Aaron and Ur helped Moses keep his hands raised as the Israelites won the battle, as long as Moses' hands were raised. Yahweh declared he would be at war with Amalek from generation to generation until the day of the Lord. And I included until the day of the Lord, guys, because that's also in Jubilees, and um, that's also... That's that's what he says later about. I think it's in First Samuel declaring to Amalek that they they will be wiped out with all the other rebellious nations at the coming of the Lord. So I bet Moses' his arms were tired. How long was that just, battle? Yeah, I'm it's sure the, the at least the sundown, right? So like, yeah, but just within the first ten minutes, he's not, he's got no blood in his arms. Yeah, he's that's just, why he had to have two guys help him hold him up. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's like, man, I should have got a clip of those wacky inflatable noodle guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah moses is like i'm tired let me lean over no stop they're losing okay hold my yeah. arms please hold my arms Somebody. Uh, yeah. all right so guys we have some companion passages here um whose turn is it to read i believe mine all right brother jubilee's 48 all right And in the sixth year of the third week of the 49th Jubilee, you did depart and dwell in the land of Midian five weeks in one year and did return into Egypt in the second week in the second year in the 50th Jubilee. And you know what he spoke to you on Mount Sinai and what Prince Mastema desired to do with you when you were returning into Egypt on the way when you did meet him at the lodging place. Did he not, with all his power, seek to slay you and deliver the Egyptians out of your hand when he saw that you were sent to execute judgment and vengeance on the Egyptians and delivered and I delivered you out of his hand and you did perform the signs and wonders which you were sent to perform in Egypt against Pharaoh and against all his house and against his servants and his people uh oh we froze is it froze can you guys hear me there it is yeah I got you And the Lord executed a great vengeance on them for Israel's sake and smote them through the plagues of blood and frogs, lice and dog flies and malignant boils breaking forth in blains and their cattle by death and by hailstones. Thereby he destroyed everything that grew for them and by locusts, which devoured the residue, which had been left by the hail and by darkness and by the death of the firstborn of men and animals and on all their idols, the Lord took vengeance and burned them with fire. And everything was sent through your hand, and you should declare these things before they were done. And you did not speak with the king of Egypt before all his servants and before his people. 
And everything took place according to your words. Ten great and terrible judgments came on the land of Egypt that you might execute vengeance on it for Israel. And the Lord did everything for Israel's sake and according to his covenant, which he had ordained with Abraham, that he would take vengeance on them as they had brought them by force into bondage. And the prince Mastema stood up against you and sought to cast you into the hands of Pharaoh. And he helped the Egyptian sorcerers. And they stood up and wrought before you the evils indeed we permitted them to work, but the remedies we did not allow to be wrought by their, their hands. And the Lord smote them with malignant ulcers, and they were not able to stand, for we destroyed them so that they could not perform a single sign. It's the angels speaking, right? And notwithstanding all these signs and wonders, the Prince Mastema was not put to shame because we took courage, because he took courage, Mastema did, and cried to the Egyptians to pursue after you with all the powers of the Egyptians, with their chari chariots and with their horses and with all the hosts of the peoples of Egypt. And I stood between the Egyptians and, and Israel, and we delivered Israel out of his hand and out of the hand of, of his people. And the Lord brought them through the mists, midst of the sea as if it were dry land. And all the peoples whom he had brought to pursue after Israel, the Lord our God cast them into the midst of the sea, into the depths of the abyss beneath the children of Israel. Even as the people of Egypt had cast their children into the river, he took vengeance on one million of them. And one thousand strong and energetic men were destroyed on account of one's of one suckling of the children of your people, which they had thrown into the river on account of Moses, right? And on the 14th day, and on the 15th, and on the 16th, and on the 17th, and on the 18th, the prince Mastema was bound and imprisoned behind the children of Israel that he might not accuse them. And on the 19th, we let them loose that they might help the Egyptians and pursue the children of Israel. And he hardened their hearts and made them stubborn. And the device was devised by the Lord our God that he might smite the Egyptians and cast them into the sea. And on the 14th, we bound him that he might not accuse the children of Israel on the day when they asked the Egyptians for vessels and garments, vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of bronze in order to despoil the Egyptians in return for the bondage in which they had forced them to serve. And we did not lead forth the children of Israel from Egypt empty handed. Awesome. Thank you, brother. No worries. Lots of interesting stuff here. Yeah. I'm yeah. This to break is it down with you. Big mm -hmm. summation chapter of everything we've been studying for the past several weeks, as, as far as the beginning of Moses and Aaron appealing to Pharaoh to let the people go, all the plagues that ensued in order to force the hand of Pharaoh and then bringing them out and some of the details that we don't get in the Exodus account. So, yeah, there's so many fun things to, to discuss in here. Uh, Hannibal, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? I just wonder what it looked like when they bound Mistima uh, and, you know, how, how those uh, battles, you know, between angelic beings take place. Um, and I was also thinking about uh, the connection with the name Mastima, which I think means enmity or something. Uh, and the connection that we see in Jubilees chapter 1 verse 19 to Mastima being the same character as Beliar, which uh, I think in Hebrew means worthless one, which is such a fitting name for this character. Uh, but uh, um, a thousand to one, right? The ratio of uh, the vengeance. And, you know, obviously in videos that you've had and other believers, this is a big uh, issue with a lot of atheists that despise the father of, um, of all living things, right? 
without really knowing him or his character, this story really irks them. Um, and I think it's spiritual warfare. That's why they, you know, they're completely blinded to what the story is actually saying. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah I, there was for every every Hebrew baby that was thrown into the Nile, there was mm -hmm. a thousand Egyptian military yeah. that were killed in the Red Sea. That's the ratio that. that's trying to say. Yeah, and so that means say, got it. Go ahead. Yeah, so that means that the father that so so if like we if we break this down in a practical manner, like we talked about multiple past weeks of the Torah portion, uh, the Egyptian people had a disdain for the Hebrews. Well, that disdain turned into oppression, which they they themselves participated in um, yeah. to the point where they started killing their children. So that means 999 people refused to stop the one person who went and grabbed a baby and killed a, a Hebrew baby. Mm -hmm. See how that works, guys? How you yep. doing nothing makes you complicit with tyranny. You see mm -hmm. what I'm saying? You have to stand up for what's right. You have to stand up for the oppressed. This is justice, according to Yahweh. So yeah. that means all of the Egyptians were also complicit. And specifically, I, I don't think this is any um, coincidence, that the, the military also in many of these ancient cultures acted like a, a, a roving police force. Because the, the military would be in a, you know, sent out to stop a squall or whatever or to stop, you know. So yeah, who do you think grabbed these children from these families and threw them into the into the water? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they also threw the the male babies, right? And right. the army was male men that were, you know. Right. So same gender also. Oh man, can you imagine how many like widows now are in Egypt after this? Mm -hmm. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. So yeah, that's thousand to one. That's a big deal. That's a that's a million people um, at the bottom of the sea. Uh, surely, mm -hmm. if we found the right spot, we'd find some. Now they've found artifacts, by the way, of chariots, yeah. Egyptian chariots at the bottom of the sea. But mm -hmm. I, but you know that that could have that could have been from a variety of things. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating that, that what they found um, because they they seem to date it back to this same type of dynasty, Pharaoh's Pharaonic dynasty. But I'm I'm thinking like if they ever truly found this at the bottom of the sea, lots and lots of chariots, lots of, of uh, soldiers gear, you know, um, artifacts, spears, that kind of thing. Would they really ever tell us? Yeah, it's difficult. I've noticed from what the archeologists and historians are saying is that the, the term red sea was a later understanding and that to the Greeks that encompassed a much broader area than mm what may have been the place where they crossed obviously and the map we looked at earlier was a good guesstimation right but it's uh there's just different theories about it yeah mm -hmm. i'm reminded of the fact that god really does repay men according to their deeds you know that he has yeah. such a fair justice system that it's like hey this is what you did so this is what's going to happen back to you mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's <laughs> so ultimately um we see that satan's locked up for five days and this is this is interesting to me because this is when the actual Passover began. Um, the the people are allowed to leave that night, and then they got several days they are allowed to travel before you know Satan's released. I don't know where he was locked up or how that works. Uh, you guys are welcome to chime in, but you know it's like he's released and then he goes back to Pharaoh immediately to to convince to start doing his his thing with Pharaoh. Okay, since we understand that Ra who is the Satan character is the people they worshiped. He's the Baal character, the Baal Zephon place of worship as, as referred to as Zeus. Um, 
if he's an he's a literal character, do we think that he literally went back to Pharaoh, like walked into Pharaoh's chamber and it's like, oh, Ra showed up, and Ra's like, go mm. get them, go get them back, or do we think this was more of like his he sent his unclean spirits to affect his mind back to rage and to turn back on the deal he'd made? Both are equally possible, from my understanding. Yeah, yeah. with with yeah. Pharaoh being like such a high, um, important figure, I don't, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Mastima himself came to him. Yeah, I mean, this is what the pharaohs talked about that they, that the gods yeah. would visit. You know. Yep. So if Ra's a real character, you know, a real, and we <laughs> angels are real people. You know, mm -hmm. oh, just imagine the scene, by the way, right? Just imagine mm -hmm. the scene. Like, so I don't know if actual, you know, Ra character, if if Zeus character was uh, actually at the Bells of Fawn Temple while the the Red Sea crossing was happening, but I mean, who knows? Maybe he jumped in his uh, his Death Star and flew off. Who knows what where he was? <laughs> but I just imagine, like, can you imagine that scene? Right where he's he's sitting up on if he was at that temple he's sitting up in his mountaintop temple looking down at the sea being parted, and then the pillar of fire going through leading the you know and he's just like, oh, okay, okay, so Yahweh's serious this time like yeah he's like he's, he's literally moving the sea aside for these people like and oh and I I think it's Michael I, and you know here's this angel that's following him I remember him I'm not going to go mess with him I'm going to let him do what he did whatever yeah. he did. <laughs> you know, like, he just, they just, they just let me go. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, the, the passage said that Satan took, Mastima took courage, right? And I, and it makes me think that these guys have their own mental capacity. I mean, like these are, these are sentient beings. Like these, they have yeah. their own will, desire. They have their own. So even after he's locked up for a few days, he gets out and he's like, I'm going to take her. I'm going to go try to fight the, you know, I'm going to gather an army and fight you back. You know what I mean? And like, it's just that's like an emotion right that's like a, yeah. a, yeah. a rage like you said yeah i don't gather that he was you know when usually otherwise when you imagine or you read of angels being imprisoned or bound that's they're in tartarus right they're taken beneath the earth but i don't think that's what was going on here because yeah those those no, kind yeah, of like, what's, bonds so are eternal yeah yeah what's going on there um, I think Michael just me. had him in a chokehold and said, just sit here for a minute. Just be quiet. <laughs> oh, man, I, I should have had the Buster Stallone meme, you know, where he's holding that dude. And he's like, look at it. Look at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's just yeah, holding that really. up with a chokehold. Just look at what I'm doing. You can't stop this. God, God's yeah. greater than you. It's like a, it's, it's cool that the angel of the presence is like with with Michael or whoever it may be, but the angel of the presence is who it's called that's there with them. Whereas, aren't there normally these are the archangels that are ministering in the the temple at that time, right? Uh -huh. So like they they stopped that to come and personally, you know, like the highest authority under God at the time. Yeah, well, God one of, one of them does. So if if this, that's why I said my theory is that this is Michael, because he's yeah. the angel that we're told is set over Israel. And so yep. if he is the one that was that was also set to be their babysitter at this time as well, um, Enoch tells us there's six other archangels who could also, in my understanding, do these do the duties in the temple while Michael's down here. But still, it's like the we when he keeps saying we bound him. So there's yeah. clearly a lot of other angels involved, in my opinion, mm -hmm. apparently. And I'm guessing yeah. they also restricted or bound the unclean spirits working under the control of Ra. Um, right, because the, the pronouns tend to switch mid-sentence where it's talking about Mistema and then it'll say, but we bound them. So that's I'm right. like, okay, there's somewhere else, somebody else that's uh, alongside with Satan there. So yeah. the unclean spirits make sense. 
Yep. Yep. So it's a, this is the spiritual battle, man, that is just going like it's, you know, some people say, oh, it's happening in an unseen realm. I'm like, actually, it's been it's in print on the page right here. Yep. You know, like this is happening. This this type of physical uh, angel versus demon battle uh, was happening and God won the war on this one. And so I think this is fascinating. Um, so just real quick with the summary, Yahweh through the angel of the presence on Mount Sinai, he reminded Moses how he met with him originally on Mount Sinai to tell him to go back to Egypt. And he saved him from Satan who wanted to kill him and stop him from executing judgment on Egypt. Now, for those of you listening, the book of Jubilees, the entirety of all 50 chapters is a conversation between Moses and the angel on Mount Sinai during the 40 days he was up there, which is your Exodus 32 moment. Or actually, technically Exodus 24 through 32. So this is this is where this whole narrative is coming from and why even at the end of this conversation, the angel is saying, okay, so you remember when I met you at the burning bush on Mount Sinai originally and I told you to go back to Egypt? And then when you, when you did and you were trying to get there, Satan wanted to kill you on the way? He's like, well, I stopped Satan from killing you on the way, right? And then, of course, his wife, Zipporah, grabbed Gershom and satisfied the reason why Satan was trying to kill Moses. And then, of course, it goes on to say the plagues of judgment against Israel are listed, revealing how Yahweh destroyed every facet of Egypt's power and pride that deceived them into oppressing the Hebrews. The angel tells Moses how Satan assisted Pharaoh's magicians, but Yahweh prevented the magicians from removing the plagues. So this, and this is, I think, what you were saying, Wisplays, where the angel in this narrative uses the term we, but we prevented the Pharaoh's magicians from stopping the plagues from continuing or happening. It was only when Moses would go before God did the plagues relent. Right. And in verse 10, I love how it says, and they stood up and wrought before thee the evils with indeed we permitted them to work like we only allowed it to happen they weren't just you know yeah that's right they weren't just doing it yeah it's it's very interesting like this to me is as another thing about what it continues to say that god yahweh hardened pharaoh's heart but yet here we mm -hmm. see in jubilees 48 that mistima was let back out and then yahweh and then pharaoh decided after mistima was let back out and you know, encouraged Pharaoh to rally the army and go get these people back. That it says mm -hmm. Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. So Yahweh is allowing the consequence of the covenant to take place, which means the accuser then steps into his role and goes to Pharaoh to harden his heart. But Yahweh still gets the Yahweh. I have tried to say this in the past. I don't think I've done it well. No You're one right. can Yahweh doesn't care about your opinion of him. Let me put it like this. He's in control of all things in heaven and earth, right? So yeah. he's basically, he doesn't care if you slander him. He can take the criticism. So when he says, look, I got this dude acting crazy. He's not following my ways. He's trying to kill my children, my people who are following my ways. This dude's working directly for Ra, for Satan, for Mastima. And for a short moment, I took Mastima's influence off of his life. But then when I release it again, Mastima is going to go back to doing what he does and Pharaoh is going to go back to doing the same pattern of being influenced by Mastima. Mm -hmm. So therefore it's Yahweh who let Mastima go. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, it's like Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yep. And I got to be honest, when you first sent me the invitation to join you for this, I thought we were going to be talking about Exodus 13 and Jubilees 49. You feel me? <laughs> right. So the, I had prepared some ideas that kind of go along with what you're saying right now, just in the fact that, God sometimes sends evil spirits that he's like you said, he's ultimately in control. We see that in Judges 9, 23, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Sam, 1 Samuel 16 through really chapter 16 through 19. It's repeated over and over again that 
an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized. Mm -hmm. And so God's in complete control and and utilizes their their behavior that they're already going to exemplify oftentimes, right? Yeah. And so it makes yep. me it reminds me of Joseph's statement where he says, What you meant for evil, God used to save many people alive. Mm -hmm. Right? God yeah. used for good. So it's like it's it's not like he wants to create um sin in your life. You've already you've already sinned by being becoming susceptible to unclean spirits. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. Satan has has been given control by God of the unclean spirits in Jubilee chapter 10. See what I mean? So I'm kind of I'm kind of agreeing with what you're saying and expounding a little bit to say like thank you. It Satan the only reason Satan has control over unclean spirits is because God allowed it. In Jubilee chapter it, right? 10, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So even at any time, if, if Yahweh decides I've got a grander master plan and I'm going to, uh, this dude who's been really rebellious, um, I know that there's an unclean spirit that might want to affect him to cause him to do something, which will help me accomplish a greater plan to help more people. Even though this guy's acting crazy right now mm -hmm. and he's, cause he's set his heart in the way he wants to go. So then the father's like, well, then I'm not going to stop these unclean spirits from attacking him because I know what they're going to do to him. And the end result's going to equal my master plan that helps more people come to righteousness. Yeah. You know, it's what like a sense? philosophical challenge that a lot of people might would struggle with. Like, yeah. oh, God uses evil spirits, but like, I get it. It makes yeah. sense to me. Well, Ultimately, it's, he's in charge. It's Yeshua getting killed on the cross, right? Mm -hmm. What does Yeshua pray? Not my will, but your will be done. It yeah. Isaiah 53, yeah. it was his will to crush him on our behalf, right? Did Yahweh literally come down and put Yeshua on the cross? Of course not. It was the unclean spirits affecting the corrupt rulers of the day, both the, the Sanhedrin and the Romans, to actually kill an innocent man. You yeah. see what I'm saying? So, like, that's, yeah. but it, but what was the grander purpose? What came of that? The resurrection of Yeshua, the, the future priest. glorification of all the saints, and the, the right. riddance of all evil, right? So, like, oh, yes, th this is can be a deep philosophical conversation. Um, and it, there is a lot of context you have to keep into this conversation, which is why right. it trips up so many people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but yeah, good good point, uh, brother. So here, just real quick, in Jubilees 48, um, we see that Yahweh, through the angel of the presence on Mount Sinai, he reminded Moses, uh, I'm sorry, I already read that. Um, so the the bottom here, angel recounted how the armies of Pharaoh were all killed in the Red Sea while chasing the Israelites. And he revealed one million Egyptian warriors were killed, which was a thousand to one ratio compared to the Hebrew babies that were murdered. I like how you, how you put that, because when I read it, it said, to me, it appeared to mean like on account of the one that y'all had put into the river, I thought it was talking about Moses, but I get now I see the, the million to the a thousand, which is a thousand one ratio. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's just judgment. <laughs> it's like, all right, you're going to kill my children. Guess what? Um, so the angel also revealed that they bound Satan for five days from the Passover to the point of the Red Sea. And after releasing them, he roused Pharaoh to chase the freed Israelites. Um, as a result of Satan being bound, the Egyptian people also showed favor to the Hebrews and gave them their reparations. Uh, yeah, I did use the word reparations. Uh, gave them their reparations of silver and gold before they left Goshen. Because literally, that's what the text says. It says in Jubilees yeah. 48 that they gave it to them because of their enslavement. Um, and so it says at the very end here, verse 18, and the vessels of gold, vessels of bronze, in order to despoil the Egyptians in return for the bondage in which they forced them to serve. So that technically is... Uh, well, working definition of word yeah guys anything else in this chapter before we go to mark six good talk i enjoyed that discussion yeah cool brother whose whose turn was it to read i can't remember i believe yours 
Is it mine? All right. Yeah. So here in Mark 6, guys, Jesus went on from there and came to the hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these ideas? They asked. What is this wisdom he has been given? And how can he perform such miracles? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us as well? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own household is a prophet without honor. So he could not perform any miracles there except to lay his hands on a few of the sick and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. And he went around from village to village teaching the people. Then Jesus called the twelve to him and began to descend them out two by two, giving them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing but a staff for the journey, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, and to wear sandals, but not a second tunic. Then he told them, when you enter a house, stay there until you leave that area. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that place as a testament against them. So they set out and preached that the people should repent. They also drove out many demons and healed many of the sick, anointing them with oil. Now King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others were saying, he's Elijah. And still others were saying, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has risen from the dead? For Herod himself had ordered that John be arrested and bound and imprisoned for on account of his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, whom Herod had married. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful to, for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she had been unable, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And when he had heard John's words, he was greatly perplexed, yet he listened to him gladly. On Herod's birthday, her opportunity arose. Herod held a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Then she went out and asked her mother, What should I request? And her mother answered, The head of John the Baptist. And at once the girl hurried back to the king with her request. I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter immediately. The king was consumed with sorrow, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to refuse her. So without delay, the king commanded that John's head be brought in. He sent an executioner who went and beheaded him in the prison. The man brought John's head on a platter and presented it to the girl who gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about this, they came and took his body and placed it in a tomb. Meanwhile, the apostles gathered around Jesus and brought him news of all that he had done and taught. And he said to them, Come with me privately to a solitary place and let us rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in a boat by themselves to a solitary place. But many people saw them leaving and recognized them. They ran together on foot from all the towns and arrived before them. When Jesus stopped ashore and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. By now the hour was already late. So the disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is already late. Dismiss the crowd so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus told them, you give them something to eat. They asked, Should we go out and spend 200 denarii to give all the bread and to eat? Go and see how many loaves you have, he told them. And after checking, he said, Five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have the people sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Take the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, 
Jesus spoke a blessing and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before them, and he divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And there were five thousand men who had eaten the loaves. Immediately Joseph, excuse me, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After bidding them farewell, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and Jesus was on land alone on land. He could see that the disciples were straining to row because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the sea. He intended to pass by them, but when he saw, but when they saw him walking on the on the sea, they cried out, thinking he was a ghost. For they all saw him and were terrified. But Jesus spoke up at once, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. And the disciples were utterly astounded, for they had not understood about the loaves, but their hearts had been hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and moored the boats. As soon as they got out of the boat, the people recognized Jesus and ran through that whole region, carrying the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, villages and towns and countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him just to let them touch the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Hallelujah. Another miraculous chapter. Miraculous feeding. Yeah. I was trying to figure out why you included this. But with the manna and the hardening of the hearts with the Israelites and the, and the Egyptians, all kinds of things. Also noticed, I couldn't help but feel like touched by when Jesus is saying that a prophet, you know, isn't respected in, except for in or is respected except for in his hometown and amongst his own people. And it talks about how he's going to heal and trying. He's trying to do miracles, but as a result of the people's little, like little faith in him and mm -hmm. rejecting Which of him, heart. he's not yeah. able to do right. And it yeah. says he even healed a couple people, put hands on them, healed them, and then he still says after that he was astonished by their disbelief. So I can only picture like so so few people have any respect for what he says. They're like, oh, that's just the son of Joseph and Mary. And then he even heals a couple people, and I can even imagine they're just like still not believing even the people that he healed maybe it's wild yeah, it, hardened hearts right it is it's sad and by the way you mentioned that the brothers that it mentioned here and um i just think here in verse three james we know who james is we see him in acts 15 right we see him later in matthew 28 but joseph judas and simon i i don't i uh, some people believe that judas is the actual jude the, the author of jude right mm -hmm. um but i've never heard of simon or joseph so like who who are these dudes? Like, you know, we yeah. did they believe? Because apparently James didn't believe until after the resurrection. Yeah. So I, and the sisters. Just, and the sisters, yeah. How many of those? We yeah. didn't even get a count of those, you know. Mm -hmm. So like he had a big family, you know. For, for some weird reason, um, growing up, before I, I realized that James was his brother or his older brother, his older brother, uh, before I realized that, I was like, I always thought he was an only child, you know. But no, like he had, I mean, think about, did, did his brothers pick on him? Did they pull pranks on him? Did, you know, did like, did, I don't know, just did he, you know, play with them and pull a prank on them with a miracle from time to time? Like, I don't know. Like, how does this work? This is crazy to me, right? Because, yeah. yeah. you know, think about like, if you're the brother in the family that's never making a mistake, the brothers are going to be hating on you. Like, it's just, yeah. it's just, it just reminds me of the Joseph situation, right? Um because ultimately these, these uh, brothers and sisters will bow down to Yeshua, you know? And so, uh, yeah, it's very interesting that, 
for whatever reason in the Matthew and the Luke account, I don't remember it mentioning Joseph and Simon. And so no, I just thought right. it was interesting. Yeah. And Mary having been a virgin. Right. I mean, did she conceive? Is it said that she conceived afterwards? That she, I mean, did she had any other children from her? I've, I, I, I don't have any citation for this, but I've had right. people tell me that um, Mary was the second wife and that these children were from um, Joseph's first marriage. First, first That's why he was much older than Mary. I've heard that. And then I've also heard the theory that the in like the Hebrew and Greek, the, the it was like an idiom to say brother when they were just like maybe family cousins could be extended family of some sort, too. Instead yeah, of brothers and sisters? Instead of literal, yeah. Born okay. from the same parents. Yeah, it's, parents. In, it's interesting. Um, so, yeah, just a little side tangent, really. But but ultimately, you know, the reason why I paired this up, brother, is because of the manna. Right. So what do we talk yeah. about the manna? It's a physical manifestation of God that he literally, that acts like properties of water. Like it can melt. But it's also food. It can also be made into food, right? So when Yeshua is with the 5,000, he's going to, he's going to grab some fish and the loaves and he's like, and they just get multiplied and they just keep handing out more out of the baskets. Where's that coming from? Where's that physical, tangible substance coming from? Being created from the word, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but what's, what is, the medium, what is in the air all around them? Yeah. So it's like, he literally has the building blocks to make and through miraculous divine instant creation, whatever he wants, because there's water in everything. Mm -hmm. Like this, just, this just blows my mind. This just blows mm -hmm. my mind. Like, because I've always wondered, all right, what, like from a science standpoint, like how do you get the extra material? Like, how do you do this? Well, the manna is our, is a wonderful precedent for this. Yeah. What is this extra material that, Oh, has the same properties of water and it also can be cooked and baked. But so it's like, he's lit. Did he feed them? the bread of angels that day. It doesn't say that specifically, but it's a possibility. No. Yeah. No. But if, it, if it's being created in the same way is all I'm getting at. Right. Yeah. yeah. Cause because I doubt that the fat, the five loaves that they had on hand were manna. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's just an interesting thought. And also fish, you know, live in water. So it's interesting. Yeah. Too. I like that. Um, <laughs> it gets and then of course, doing all this in a mortal body, right? Pre-glorified pre-resurrection. Yeah. Right. And that's where we get the, the wonderful wisdom of Solomon, chapter 6. I think it's verse 24, right? To those who are obedient to you, the creation relaxes on behalf of those who are obedient. Nice. So he can just, you know, this is why the miracles flow through people who do the Torah, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we practice the Father's behavior. All things are possible. Yes, it's sir. amazing. With him. It truly is. It truly is. The another reason why I chose March 6 is because, guess what he's doing? By manipulating water again. He walks on it. Yeah. Yep. And he does that both pre-resurrection and post-resurrection, doesn't he? According does he walk post-resurrection? I is thought, it? no, I was asking. Uh, I don't remember post. Maybe, am I missing it? Um, Maybe not. I just know I mean, it's I mean, I know different we, gospel accounts, and uh, it seemed as if the timing of one of those accounts was after the resurrection. I wasn't sure. I don't think they, I don't, no. I think he could. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think he could. I just don't sure. remember being recorded. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Thank you. After the resurrection. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I we're, like, all, uh, we're all going to walk on water at the resurrection. Like the tiny passage in uh, verse 48, where it says that Jesus intended to pass by them. <laughs> and I'm like, was he just planning on doing these guys that yeah. just keep moving? Yeah. Look at look what you could be doing if you just believe. Come on, yeah. guys. Just, just believe. <laughs> 
Now, of course, the yeah. Mark account that we read is much shorter than the Matthew account and the Luke mm-hmm. account where, where, you know, between him, them being spotted on the water and getting in the boat, there's this interaction where Peter comes out to him on the water and Peter also walks on the water for a short minute, which lets you know, it's not just the, the son of God that can do it guys. Mm-hmm. Just think about that for a minute. And, and Yeshua wasn't holding his hand either. It was Peter not being touched by anybody walking on the water because he had faith for that moment. And then when he started to see the sea and the rushing waves and everything, he doubted and started to sink. Yeshua saves him. But, um, but yeah, it's possible for a non-glorified man and even a non-miraculously born son of God, just a regular man born of the earth, to actually walk on water according to the, the gospel accounts. So I think that that's fascinating to me because it's just, like I said, it's just a manipulation of the creation that's that's given to the faithful. It's given to the obedient, you know, those who are trying to do the covenant behavior of Yahweh and keep his Torah with the right hearts. And the father's like, I made all of this for you. Like, I didn't make you to be subservient subject to this creation. Like, I made this entire creation for you to roll over and have mastery. Genesis 1, 27 through 29. Like, the port, you know, so to get to that ultimate alpha state, you got to be obedient. You got to work within the the parameters that I established for you to have mastery over the creation, which means you got to act like me, you know? And so I think that it's just amazing that we're even given that opportunity to begin with and that we see moments of it exemplified uh, both through the prophets, through our Messiah, and also even through someone as wishy-washy as Peter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's you ironic that he's called yeah. the, the rock, right? The Kepha. Yeah. The rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The rock that's walking yeah. on water. It's great. Um, so, yeah, this is a big chapter, guys. There's a lot in here. Um, let's see if I can go back to the, some of the summary. We can finish out and give us a few more talking points here. But um, during his earthly ministry, Yeshua's journeys took him back to his hometown. Well, it was Nazareth, also in Luke 4. Uh, they tried to kill him, by the way. So the Mark account is very abbreviated. Um, so it, where he taught in the synagogue and healed very few people due to their unbelief in him and genuinely being sent by the Father. So they didn't really believe he was the Messiah. Um, but apparently just a few people did. After Yeshua visited several other villages, he sent his 12 disciples out in pairs to other towns in the region of Samaria to teach the gospel of the kingdom and practice miracles. Also, Luke 9 and Matthew 10, we get this expounded further, what Mark 6 is an abbreviated version of. And you see that he, he tells them to go out and they, they preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, in addition to kicking out demons and healing the sick. And so it was a very successful journey for them. And telling them to repent as well. Right. And- Right, which is not just to change their minds and to have a an ideological belief, right. but to turn from their transgressions of God's That's law. Right. Stop doing the ways of Baal. Stop doing the practices of unbelief. Do the do the ways of the kingdom of God, which is the Torah, the constitution of the kingdom, and do that with faith and belief. Right, and this is this was part of the fulfillment of Yeshua's being sent, which was what was prophesied, you know, back in Isaiah and Malachi, where John the Baptist would precede him to soften the hearts of the fathers and the sons, and so then Yeshua sweeps in with the same message of repentance in the kingdom, and then get, gets a big harvest, right, of all the yeah. people that believe in him. So. Um, and rightly so, now John the Baptist is being mentioned as Herod heard of Yeshua's growing renowned and theorized it was John the Baptist raised to life. Uh, then it goes into this kind of like flashback where Herod had begrudgingly killed John the Baptist earlier at his birthday banquet at the request of Herod's wife. And guys, when we're reading that part of the chapter, all I can think of is um, Alice in Wonderland and that little queen yeah. off with his head. Yes, it's literally the queen, Herod's wife, being like, "Off with his head!" <laughs> it's just, a, yeah. uh, it's crazy. And then they went and buried the headless body. 
sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then uh, John's disciples buried him in a tomb. I'm guessing without his head. Uh, I don't think that that was somehow relinquished. Uh, probably kept at the dinner party, uh, put on display. Who knows? Like how that works? What do they do with it afterwards? Who knows? But um, it, to me, that would not that would not create an appetite. You know, mm. like that's that's how yeah. sick and twisted these cultures had become and dark. Ever seen the spirit cooking parties? Right. Yeah. And that's, They're it makes you it. wonder what else possibly was going on with this stuff. But I did think it was interesting though, that it says that Herod believed that John was a godly man and, and would mm -hmm. listen to him. So that that's interesting, right? Because it's, it, it reminded me of Pharaoh with Moses to where it's like, remember what I've kept saying for the last few weeks, like at any point, Pharaoh could have just been like this dude again, kill him. You know, like, why is he back? Kill this guy. You mm -hmm. know, he keeps telling me something. I already told him no. Most kings had that attitude, right? Yeah. I already told you no. You keep pressing me. You question my authority. Take him to the gulag. You know, so like Pharaoh gave Moses this ridiculous length of rope yep. to, to continue to, to court his presence and ask this request, uh, which was seems strange for such a tyrannical guy, right? Yeah. But I'm wondering if there was the same sense of curiosity of like, man, this dude's miracle. This guy's doing miracles too. Let's see what else he's got. Let's see what he's see what happens this next time he shows up. I'm not going to agree to anything he says anyway, but let's see what how he entertains me. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. interesting that that Herod has this kind of like he's he's intrigued by John the Baptist, but uh, you know Yeshua did call John the Baptist the greatest of the prophets. Mm -hmm. So like mm -hmm. that that mean I'm I'm guessing that means he's well versed that he spoke with conviction and authority. Um, mm -hmm. Who knows? He could have done a miracle in the sight of Herod to try to get him to repent, but it looks like John the Baptist. That you know, this is a little glimpse of some backstory that we don't see from Matthew three and John chapter two when John the Baptist is is just in and camel hair and, and sackcloth out there preaching in the desert and baptizing people. Right. you think that who's just crazy again? Well, he clearly he had enough savvy to know, I need to go talk to the political leader of this region and try to get him to repent so we can yep. effectively affect change for the good, because there's a lot of darkness in this land and we need to stop it. Well, how do you do that? You go to the leaders. So the prophets, just like prophets of the old Testament, because truly guys, there's no difference between the old and new Testament. Just like prophets from before him, from Malachi down to Moses and Enoch, they all went to the leaders of their day and told them to repent because they were in charge of the people, leading them into spiritual blindness. Yep. Same thing with John the Baptist. So this is an, is an amazing little back, uh, back flashback glimpse of, of John going out there and being super bold. And just he lost his head for it, too. Yeah. yeah. Just went up to Herod and said, you know. Leviticus twenty twenty one man, your turn or burn, <laughs> you know, repent. <laughs> yeah, because uh, yeah, he's having his his uh, brother's wife, and that was just a big no no. Yeah. So, yeah, and of course the wife is angered because she's like, hey, I got with the I got with the brother I finally wanted to get with, and now you're trying to take him yeah. away from me, you know, because she's with the she's with the ultimate king now. She's not with the du the the duke or the what do they call the family of the they call them the dukes or the family of the king? That like they're not the prince, but they're there's somebody in authority. I don't remember. But uh, at the bottom here, Yeshua's disciples returned to him with good news of their ministry journeys. Right. And this is an interesting part. I would suggest people go look in Luke chapter nine and 10, where this uh, is fleshed out, you know, and, and Yeshua, how he responds to them and how he yeah. uh, has more authority than they. And he gives an example <laughs> of that. So yeah. it's Satan fall like lightning. Yeah. Yeah. It's because Yeshua already encountered their leader. So 
Yeshua's, Yeshua's uh, disciples are going to take on the disciples of Satan. Yeshua's already showed mastery over both Satan and his disciples, the unclean spirits. Also, it says, while teaching a multitude of 5,000 people, Yeshua miraculously generated food for them all from only five loaves of bread and two fish. And that's what we just talked about. Like, where's this substance coming from? I'm going to put forward the theory that's coming from the water and the air. So just a thought. Um, afterward, Yeshua instructed his disciples to cross the sea while he stayed behind to pray on the mountainside. During the night, the disciples were struggling to row in the wind, and Yeshua walked out on top of the water to them, climbed in their boat, and the wind stopped. And once they reached the other side of the sea, the people recognized Yeshua and brought him many lame and sick for him to heal them. He healed everyone who touched him. And they, they specifically touched the fringe of his garment, right? Yeah. Yep. Which, if you look at the Greek, okay. like there's a lot of footnotes on that fringe word that definitely says that they, they relate that to the zit zit, right? The tassel. Yeah. Numbers 38, no, 1530. Yeah. Numbers 1537, 38. Yeshua yeah. wore zit zits, guys. Should we be wearing them? Our, the Lord of heaven and earth, our, our master uh, in the faith, like our the one whom we disciple after, who teaches us how to, to be like he was, uh, he wore zitzits on his clothes. So I, I would suggest we should too, probably. Yeah. Yep. I think it'd be good. Um, and it's really not that big of a deal. Like I have mine with safety pins, you know, so I can like, yeah. transfer yeah. them to different, I can transfer them to like different jeans or different clothes. I actually make them, and uh, yeah. if anybody's interested, you could reach out to me. I will cool. sell them. There you go. What can they reach out to you? You can uh, find me. You can comment on uh, my YouTube channel, and I'll find a way to get in touch with you. You can reach out on Facebook Messenger, westblaze at hotmail.com. But, uh, yeah, I'm looking to get back into it. I was doing it for a while and had lots of repeat customers with it, and I'm just happy to provide a way because I know when I first wanted to obey that commandment, I was like, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to make them. You know, I was all nervous and anxious about what to do about it. And the, the commandment is for you to make for yourselves, but it's a good way to get started to to reach out to somebody that knows how to make them. That way you can maybe look at one for yourself and, and figure it out from there. Mm -hmm. Yep. I would I would encourage that, guys. Um any other thoughts, guys, that we, we hit the end of our companion passages? So I didn't have anything else for today, but what are your thoughts on everything we discussed and talked about? And are the pairings making a little bit more sense? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I, we had someone uh, reach out to us. I can't remember if it was an email or a, a comment. I, I don't get to respond, guys, just as another general disclosure. Um, I do apologize. Uh, what we're doing has grown to the point to where I get more messages and comments and questions asked than I can address. Okay. So I'm really sorry about that. I try to address as many as I can, but we had someone um, ask us, you know, can I, if I would be willing to explain why we did the pairings that we did and where I came up with them. And, you know, I try to explain it throughout the entire tour portion as I connect all the ideas together. So unfortunately, no, I don't have like a just bullet point listed out of this is why I chose this one, that, but I try to like weave it into the conversation. So sure. Cause there is a kind of standardized traditional tour portion where somebody has already paired, you yeah. know, new Testament, how to shop passages with the Torah and you, you have chosen your own, right? Yeah. Because I want every year to be different. So yeah. I, I want because there's more Bible to do. <laughs> there's a whole bunch. Yeah. Of, there's a whole bunch of scripture to cover. So, like you know, and I've even considered in the future um, uh, not doing the first five books and instead doing like Joshua through Ruth or something. You know, yeah. or just or it, just do like, Torah, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, exactly. Just do That's maybe right. maybe use the Psalms as uh, one of the books that we go through and then just pick five different books to go through for that same time period and then have a bunch of and then my companion passages. I would pull from the first five books of the Bible as I as I pair them up because it's all the same story. They all they all interconnect anyway. You know, right. so, yeah, I've thought so, about that in the future. That yep. could be cool. I like it. Yeah, just to just switch it up a little bit. But yes, I uh, really appreciate you all. Um, Hannibal, thanks. Thank you, brother, for being faithful and uh, just like you know, being in involved and engaged. Uh, you're always yeah. in the chat. I really appreciate that. You're helping us drop links and help other people in the chat get questions answered while I'm still talking or whatever. Right. So we really appreciate that. I want to encourage you to Hannibal brother. You're always a, just a faithful brother for sure. Everything Sean just said, I couldn't say it better, but you are very engaged and uh, you always have like a passion that shows right. And that light in your eyes. I love it. <laughs> Much love to you, bro. Thank you guys. Praise yeah, God. For being awesome, brother. Same thing to you, West Blaze. Um, I'm excited for uh, you know a couple months here. We're gonna be able to get back to things and uh, start up on Coming Ground too. But in the meantime, you are putting out some serious meats with your spiritual warfare series that you're doing. So you guys, if you haven't been aware of that, go check out Westway's music channel. Fight um, the good on YouTube. fight. Yep, and he's got a new series called Fight the Good Fight. So I think you guys will really enjoy it. And it's about spiritual warfare. Practically, how is it done? West Blaze covers it. Going Take from the love. basics. Right. Next episode's called Biblical Boot Camp. So nice. we we we're looking at the call to duty in the first episode, but uh, I'm on a a upload That's ban. D-U-T-Y. Yeah, D U T Y. Right. <laughs> I'm on an upload ban on on uh, the West Blaze Music Channel right now. I think it's fairly temporary. I'll have to check when it's when it's lifted. But by the time that happens, I should be able to get another episode up. And uh, yeah, just looking at the practical foundations of of what it biblically means to engage in spiritual warfare. All too often, we're hearing a lot of testimonials and uh, you know commentaries from from different so called experts, and uh, they'll they'll just lead you on a path of things that aren't found in Scripture to to help you engage in that spiritual battle. Whereas I I firmly believe that I that the whole of Scripture gives us everything we need. Yes. Yep. I agree. I agree with that. And also, guys, I'm just going to share this real quick. Tonight, um, tonight we're doing a discussion uh, with two pastors about the rapture or the resurrection. Excited so you guys ch- tune into that. It's going to be tonight at uh, 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Um, and hopefully that'll be fun. So this will be the first discussion that I know of that you've had with people that have a difference of opinion on that subject specifically. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I think actually one of the pastors is kind of on the fence, I think. Um, and then the other pastor, I think he believes in the rapture. And so we're going to talk about, the, you know, all the ins and outs. And as always, you know, I try to, you know, give them plenty of opportunity to explain what they believe. Right. And that's why I ask questions. So wait a minute. You believe this, that or this? So because I'm not when you see me doing that, I'm not trying to be antagonistic. Like I'm trying to make sure I understand exactly how they believe what they believe and what scriptures they're pulling that stuff from, you know, and that's, that's just how it helps me give them a fair shake to explain themselves. You know, I like um, it. I, I never want to assume what they believe and then be wrong and then be arguing a mute point. So, but ultimately you guys know, I believe in the resurrection. So uh, I don't believe in a, like a secret rapture of any kind. Um, so we'll be talking about that in depth tonight and going over the scriptures. So I hope you guys join us. I look forward to it. Very Thank excited. You. Thanks again, brother. Y'all have a yeah. good one. Thank you guys. We will see you guys next time. Here Shalom, everyone. Shalom and blessings.